Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of the Ghost Army Podcast. With me tonight is the one and only Rocket Man, Anthony. What is going down? How's it going, Mr. Old Man Moran? Uh, I'm a little bit older now. I mean, elsewhere in this episode, uh, I celebrate my 40th birthday. So some of you out there might be thinking, 40? Man, he's not as old as he you know makes out to be. But no, I think old is a mindset, and I'm old and grumpy. What do you think? I think some people out there will be thinking, God damn, he's older than I thought. <laughs> That's probably true. Uh, but yeah, elsewhere in this episode, again, we have a very special guest in, uh, in the form of Andy Chambers, one of the godfathers of many, many game systems, including Warhammer 40K 2nd Edition, and uh, he definitely worked on Rogue Trader. But um, yeah, I, I think that takes us back a bit, doesn't it, Anthony? Oh, yes, the Overlord himself. That's it. And uh, just, you know, I may not be uh, old in years, but I'm definitely old in gaming. Of those 40 years, I've been playing <laughs> war games of some sort or another since, uh, well, since I can remember anyway. But let's get on with more important things. Anthony, what have you been up to, my man? Well, uh, Banff was a couple of weeks ago. and we That would be Bolt Action Melbourne... February, for those wondering, the one-day event we had um, at Games Lab in Melbourne had um, a, a good number of players, and we will talk more about that later in the episode. But, Amph, yep, go ahead. Yeah, and that was only two weeks after CanCon, so I'm a little bit burnt out. I'm just gonna, I've just been taking a bit of a break. No painting, just assembling some new vehicles, some new toys. Yeah, dude. Uh, including for that, I converted up some HMG Jeeps for my Soviets. Now, I'm glad you brought that up because those look really good. Now, um, they you can just take HMG, MMG Jeeps or Gaz Jeeps in the Russian book, just like you can in a lot of the other Allied books. But you did yours to actually be the Russian ones, not Lendley's. Um, where did you get the models and where did you get the guns? Because I know for the guns you had to go a little, uh, a little left of field for what we'd usually look for, or at least a lot of people look for, for bolt action stuff. I don't because I know they have the gas mask Russians. I mean, Germans. So go ahead. I, I feel like I'm propping this too much. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the Jeeps were the normal Warlord gas Jeeps. So I got two of those. And then I went and got some of the um, Soviet HMGs from Eureka, the DSHK HMGs. Yeah. They actually sell them for... Um, more of their modern range, but it's actually the same gun. Yeah. So so you can buy them with like some Somali crew and stuff like that. But I just got the guns by themselves and then I've just converted them up to still be on the tripod in the back of the Gaz Jeeps with just some plastic crewmen. Now, which crewmen did you use? Because it looked like they were a mix of companies. Uh, yeah, they were actually War Games Factory Soviets. So I've still got a bunch of them from a couple of box sets I brought. So yeah, they fit in the Gaz Jeep fine along with the warlord metal crew that come with it and yeah they're looking pretty good i can't wait to actually start getting some paint on them yeah because one of the guys is really sort of standing upright not sort of hunched over not walking he's just sort of standing with his feet together standing pretty straight and with the uh, and that works really well with the you know the pintle mounted hmg right yeah and the soviet hmg is such a massive gun too like compared to a 50 cal that yeah. thing's just a, a beast it is. It's huge. 
Um, I have yet to hold one in person, but just looking at that Jeep, it's like, God, is that gun as big as the Jeep? Um, yeah, it, it's an impressive, uh, yeah, it's impressive. Yeah, so I got those. Uh, I also picked up a M3 white scout car from um, Campaign Books and Game Logistics. Nice. Who we also have on later in the episode. So you were the reason why I couldn't buy one when I tried to buy one about you know a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I got the last one. Sorry, Brad. Oh, you're a joke. <laughs> I sold one of mine to Lachlan and then went, oh, I, should, I need to replace that. And then went to buy it and, of course, they don't have one. Ugh. Although Warlord has also just released their M3 Scout car, so I guess yeah. you've got options now. I do, and the Warlord one looks really sweet, but my problem is I actually have one of the JTFM ones already, and those are the, you know, uh, campaign books and logistics are sell JTFM, so I'm like, oh, I want them to match, because it would be silly if you have the same vehicle, and they don't. Um, yeah, it's not like the Shermans where there were like 10,000 variants. There may have been a bunch of variants of M3 Scout cars, but I get the feeling that uh, if you put two white Scout cars next to one another and they didn't match, it would look a little off. Yeah, you'd want them to match. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's what I've been doing, just pretty much assembling new vehicles, and I'll probably start painting again soon. Nice. Yeah, I've actually been on a little bit of a roll um, since the last episode of uh, Ghost Army Podcast, where you asked me how my Germans were going, you jerk. Um, <laughs> I uh, I went back and, you know, I uh, started to give the old guys some love. So I've painted up a pile of dudes, uh, painted up some infantry, touched up a bunch of old infantry. Um, that I never was 100% happy with. But then I went back, and this was also a challenge from Patch um, to do something different or to try something else. Um, I really, you know, sort of went left of field with what I would have normally been comfortable painting. And I pulled out, um, I had a pile of German vehicles from when I first started playing bolt action. So you may lis listen to the group and think, oh, that's cheesy, or oh, why did he have that? That doesn't match. It's because when I bought them, I only bought them because they looked cool. Um, and of <laughs> course, in that list is the Hannah Mag. Yeah, I was going to say, first on that list is a Hannah Mag. Uh, after the rocking the, uh, the Sikh um, Indian carrier list, at uh, CanCon, I, I am kind of keen to take a Hanno Mag again. I don't know if I'm going to go Hanno crazy, um, but I, you know, I had one. It was mostly assembled, partially painted. Um, and yeah, I, I, I did that. I finished the Hanno Mag. I painted a, um, a six rad, so the six wheel closed top 100 point light auto cannon in a turret with a pintle mount MMG. Uh, arm, you know, recce armored car, um, which is only early war. And of course, I, I was painting all of these in late war camo. So, you know, you, you think, uh, you know, how can I get away with that? And I was thinking, I'll just give it away or throw it away or do something because the, the p spray paint was a little thick and not very conducive to actually fixing. Um, but, uh, I think it was Patch who said to give it a go. So, uh, I tried it out. It's and, a real shame that the six rads early war because it's yeah. such a good looking vehicle. Oh, it looks like I've said it before on another podcast. It looks like Dracula's, uh, you know, drag racer. It's awesome. You know what? Eight wheels in the back, two on the front. Yeah, yep. it's a it's a party, man. It looks like a giant. You know, it, yeah, it's it's very cool. 
So um, I, I figured, you know, in late war or middle war, they were used in anti-partisan actions. And my late war Germans, I'm thinking at this point, I'm really going to be using for sort of defense of Germany. So it's like, well, you know, I'm sure there was a six rad floating around in there somewhere. So sure, I'm not going to probably run in a lot of historic games, but I really wanted to finish that. You know, I had one. It was there. Yeah. So anyway, so I did the um, the six rad. I did the Hanomag, and then I finished a Puma, and I finished a um, was it a Panzer II Louche? So yeah, of all the vehicles I've been finishing, most of them have recce. Uh, I don't <laughs> think I'm going to be fielding them. You know. At, in a group as like a recce list I just happen to have them and that's what they are I think the next thing I'm going to do up Might be my long suffering At least mentioned And very neglected um, You know The big one The Sturm yeah. Tiger <laughs> so, Finally Finally. Two years too late. Yeah exactly Everyone else has taken one since then But uh, I've, I've really enjoyed playing Um so I've been painting up this amb- ambush camo. Uh, it's a combination of green, brown, and tan um, with polka dots, I guess you could say. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I've really enjoyed uh, painting them. They've uh, come up really good, man. Yeah, well, thank you, because when I <laughs> when I picked them up, they looked horrible. So uh, they've it, they've taken a lot of work and some creative, um, you know, highlighting and dry brushing to uh, sort of skate over the worst of the overspraying that a lot of them suffered from. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm ecstatic at how they came up, and that isn't actually the only little challenge I got. Um, I was challenged by um, Nate, the owner of Trenchworks. Um, he listened to the last episode and sent me a message saying, hey, I heard you were talking about the BT-42 and how you were scared of it. I challenge you to get it on the table. Uh, and so I did. Um, I sat down and on a day that was something like 100 degrees Fahrenheit here, uh, I you know, locked the doors, turned on the air conditioning and um, you know, painted it from the start of the day to the end of the day. And uh, yeah, man, it's amazing. Uh, I knew it had detail. I mean, we've we've talked about it on uh, other podcasts, but that tank kit is you know 3D printed. It's a Finnish um, medium howitzer turreted tank. For those who aren't familiar with it, it's yeah, it's it's just so sensationally detailed. But it wasn't until I actually started painting it that I realized just how detailed the you know just how well defined the edges and the corners were and um, how crisp the detailing was and just all the rivets were in the right places. It had no mold lines because it was 3D printed and it just slid together. I do love that. Oh, it was so good. Uh, Now, I would love to say that I could recommend people go out and buy this kit, but you can't because um, Nate stopped selling it uh, because he started selling it in resin. So uh, I'm I'm thinking I may have to get maybe a second one to paint in that bizarro thin camouflage. Um, I don't I doubt I'd ever use two in one game, but my thin army is all wearing winter onesies, um, you know, winter camo smocks. So I painted my BT42 in whitewash, um, and an article about that will be on our site 
I think, uh, by the time this goes to air. So, yeah, it was awesome, man. I'd never painted whitewash. And I know Judson painted, you know, wrote an article on how to use, uh, I think he used, what did he use? Not Vegemite. I think he used um, salt. Toothpaste. Oh, it was toothpaste. That's what it was. He had minty <laughs> fresh tanks. Uh, I'm, I feel a little weird about rubbing food stuffs on vehicles. So I just did it the old-fashioned way using you know, washes, creative washes, and watered-down paint. Um, I'm sure it took a little bit longer than Judd's, but because it's whitewash and a little messy, it it went, you know, it was unbelievably fast compared to, you know, painting 62 layers of ambush camouflage with polka dots. So, <laughs> No, I can't wait to get my hands on one. They look really good. Yeah. And, I mean... Game-wise, they're unbelievable. The Finns, you know, they're not known for their anti-tank abilities. Um, they used a lot of looted Soviet tanks and things like that. And they had a bunch of, you know, looted armored cars. They had a few of their own uh, or bought vehicles. Um, I think it's only one of two vehicles that don't have unreliable. I think it's one of three, actually. Well, okay. actually, because the tankette, they have a tankette, the Vickers, six oh, Okay. Which is not unreliable, um, and yeah. that has two variants. Or you could get the Sturmy, which is a Stug three, um, which is the that is the heavy AT gun uh, Stug, uh, and the BT forty two, which in reality was a piece of crap um, and pretty much got taken apart by the German. I mean, by the Russians right off the bat. Uh, however. Uh, in bolt action, they're amazing. Uh, it's a light tank with a, a turret-mounted light howitzer, all for a nifty 140 points regular. So, yeah, it's kind of the bee's knees. Is it a, is it a light howitzer or a medium? Oh, it's a medium. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, light tank, medium howitzer. And I'm thinking, and we were talking a little bit about this on air, and I was sort of teasing it because I didn't want to use up all the, the chat before we got online. But I'm thinking about painting up because I have a few Stugs in, you know, Stugs in my uh, closet, and that's not a euphemism for anything. <laughs> I was thinking uh, paint up one is to put some logs on the side and use it as a Sturmy and running a fin list that has you know, a Stug and a BT-42. Um, Sure, Finns weren't known for their armored list, but they did have tanks, and yeah, it might be fun. Of course, um, the second I probably historically researched that, um, I'm probably going to find out they never were near each other in actual combat, but they were together in the same time period in the war. So, you know, might be fun. Who knows? And it would be fun to paint another vehicle uh, in that whitewash. So, yeah. My only fear would be that's like 400 points worth of vehicles. So you're losing out on all those cool Finn infantry rules. But that's the thing, man. I mean, Finn infantry is pretty cool as it is. You don't need, you know, I just see, I see a lot of lists out there. And sure, they're great historical lists. But it seems like everyone and their dog, when they're playing Finns, seems to be taking um, CC or Sissy squads. Uh, I really don't know how to pronounce that. I'm assuming CC. A bunch of CC squads because they have that master of the hunt rule where you can advance and then go immediately into ambush. Yeah, okay, that's cool. Um, but what else could you do with the list? Um, you know, sure, everyone seems to be taking the one obligatory Carpa Carpaccio, Carpatio squad, the the dudes that come on behind you, and those are awesome. But, I mean, 
how many times do we really see in Finless, um, and albeit I'm just lo- online lists at this point because I still have yet to see a Finn army on the table other than mine. Um, how often do you see Winter War rifle squads or continuation squads? Um, you can take those as reg- uh, you know, regular or veteran, and they're pretty cool. Or Jakari light infantry squads. I actually took one of the Jakari squads in my army and stuck it in a truck. Why? Because I wanted to use them as... Um, you know, German Mountaineer squads. Now, that was before I got the last of my Finn models. But, um, yeah, I'll, I'll probably stick some Finn models in there as those bros at some point. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. How cool would it be to, you know, take something that isn't just CC constantly? What do you think? Uh, well, if I ever actually get my Finns to run... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, still waiting, yes. Um, I actually really want to try twin snipers... Maybe even try and push it for three. Because <laughs> that just, would, yeah. That would I be love very the historical, idea. yeah. Yeah, I love the idea of the Finnish snipers with that being able to move and go into ambush. Yeah. And I, and, in the, in the you know, the little bit I've gotten, um, the few games I've gotten with my Finns, I have one sniper in there because you gotta. Um, and that move and then get into ambush is so tasty. Especially if you do it in the first order dice of the turn, you can get into a better position, get you know right up somewhere where people have to walk by you, and just get in there and just hang out. Yeah, and then hitting on the one plus, so you can basically ignore long range or s- small team or something like that. Agreed. I, I looked at that. I actually forgot about that rule until the first time I played the army, and I was just thinking that they you know, ambushed, and then that was just it. But no, they actually get a plus one in ambush, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah, I, I don't know if that rule was, you know, <laughs> necessary, but God, it's good to use. Um, it's like the um, American tanks getting plus one to hit. It's, yeah, I don't know if they needed that, but yeah, it's cool to have <laughs> as one of your own rules. So, yeah, I don't know, man. Um, I, I just so many cool things in the fin list that seem to get left at home that uh, yeah I, I'm looking forward to playing around with it like a Bofors for example um, and see where we go from there so yeah it's a shame that they don't get their the finished version of the Nimrod yeah <laughs> it is it is actually a shame because they did have one and it was they essentially had six. It, yeah <laughs> which you know isn't very many but I yeah they existed think- they were out there. I think they only had like 11 Storm Tigers. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I think there was only, what, 12 Stug or 24 Stug 33Bs, which is one of my favorite tanks. So, you know, some of the, you know, rad vehicles, there were very few of in the war. And the BT-42s, uh, there may have been... A dozen? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, c- cool tanks come and go in bolt action. So I guess as long as you're not taking six of them. Oh, look, you're taking all of them that existed at one time. <laughs> yeah. Taking three mouses. Oh, wait, you can't do that. There were only two. Actually, there was one and a half, but, you know. Who's yes. Counting? One with a wooden turret. He's not going to be very effective. <laughs> no, but the, the, the tracks and hull are going to be really hard to deal with. Just tank shock people around. Sure, it's a wooden gun, but, you know, whatever. Uh, all right. Well, cool. Anthony, in this episode, um, who are we going to talk to? Uh, so we have Brian on and Peter West, mm-hmm. both to talk about uh, CanCon, how that went. That's right. And then we get together with uh, a similar crew to talk about how Bolt Action Melbourne went. 
and you were a player there, and you seemed to have a good time. Yeah, it was a good time. Uh, we're also talking to David Bruggerman and he's awesome ideas for participation games and one really good one that's coming up that oh, I would like I'm to so get to. I'm excited about that. Uh, yeah, David Bruggerman uh, and the Demo Wargamers crew. Um, and, of course, we talked about it earlier, the one and only Master of Disaster, the uh, the you know author of the Russian book and the Ozfront book. So uh, most people love him, and maybe if you play Russians, maybe not. Uh, Andy Chambers, uh, sort of one of the godfathers of wargaming in modern times. So, uh, Anthony, what do you say? How about we get stuck in and get some bolt action happening? Sure, let's hit it. Awesome. All right, guys, we will be right back. Greetings from HMGS, and welcome to the exciting world of historical miniature wargaming. Here at HMGS, we've made it easy for you to connect with fellow hobbyists. We host three major conventions each year, Cold Wars in March, Fallen in November, and Historicon in July, which has been named the mother of all wargaming conventions. Check us out at HMGS.org to learn more about these great events. And welcome back to the Ghost Army podcast. Um, let's get into talking about... Uh, the Melbourne event that recently just came up. That's right. So, it was Banff. Bolt Action Melbourne in February. It was a really good one. And uh, so, obviously, you TO'd it, Brad. And yes, I did. Yeah. Brian, you f- flew all the way down from Sydney for it. Yeah, sure did. Hey, fellas. How's it going? Yeah, dude. It was great to have... Uh, yeah, have the all-star guest from Sydney uh, do the rock star thing and fly down for a tournament. I always love that. I always feel like you're kind of royalty when you get off the plane. And you're like, hey, guys, I just flew in for this. It's always interesting taking your figure case on a plane ride, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Going through, going through security. Um, but before we go too much further, Brad, man, that was an awesome event. Um, I've never been to a bolt action event yet that had that many smiling faces and uh, just happy people chucking dice. So well done on um, organizing that one, by the way. Thanks, man. Um, it was cool. It was, um, you know, it was just a continuation of what we've been doing down here in Melbourne. Um, it was another one-day event. Um, I think uh, the one-days seemed to work well down here. Um, we had 21 players signed up at one point, and then at the last possible minute, we had a few people that had to drop out because of work and different things. Um, and so we got to 17, and of course, because it was an odd number, it then meant that I had to sit out, um, which was fine. Um, it was actually really good to hang out and really get to know people who I sometimes just saw across a tabletop um, and just, you know, really just enjoy myself and make sure that, you know, people got the got some cool prizes. And uh, we were giving out lots of goofy prizes because we had some great prize support. And, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, we played three games. Um, we played three missions. Um, the missions were Hold Until Relieved. Um Maximum Attrition, and the Tank Battles mission. Uh, what did you guys think about the missions? I actually really like them. Um, the Tank War ones, yeah, quite interesting to start playing that. I haven't played it a lot, so then to play it at CanCon and play it at Banff, it's good to get start getting it in the rotation. That's right, because you also played in the Armored event at CanCon, but we'll talk about that elsewhere in the episode. Um, now, you've played that mission, what, three or four times now, Anthony? Is there yeah. any... Um, clearly besides the fact that it's the only bolt action tournament mission that goes for seven turns, not six at the end of seven turns, you roll for an additional turn and 
the objectives can be grabbed by vehicles and they can be grabbed within six inches, not three. Um, what, what other sort of epiphanies have you had about that mission? There's one big one, but I'll let you yeah, do that one. I'd like to field that one quickly because yeah. I came down on the um, – it was a one-day event, and I actually really like one-day events because it's a bit easier on, my, on the old brain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and on, on the Saturday before, um, a bunch of us guys uh, took on the LEDG, LRDG guys, and we had a massive like El Alamein social game, two mm-hmm. tables wide with I think it was 2,500 points on a side. We played Tank Wars mission because it just is suitable for really big scale battles and you've got lots of terrain features on the table that look like they're worth taking, like crossroads and fuel dumps. And, oh, yeah. Um, that was, it's a perfect mission for that. And we had uh, an amazing time, obviously, but afterwards it really it was a bit of a learning curve, to be honest. Like We weren't playing a competitive game. We were just, you know, just playing with all the miniatures we had in our collections and having some fun, but that mission... You've got to be careful. There's one big one um, which you're alluding to, and that's basically when you're taking objectives in this game, it's good to do it early because you can't contest them later. You can only take them if you've wiped out the enemy that's holding them. It's very different to some of the other missions in the Bolt Action Collection um, because you can't simply spoil the enemy's objective by moving a unit close to contest it. You've got to then also get them off it and be there by yourself at the end of a turn to claim it. Yeah, so, you have to capture it, recapture it. You can't just yeah. contest it. Yeah. That's, yeah, you're right. That's really intense. Um, how did you guys... I mean, I've only played, what, three... I guess i played three tank missions now. Um, but even the first two games I played, I didn't realize a good chunk of those things um, because we just played the six, mis- the six turns and the six-inch grab, we didn't read that bit until I got to CanCon, and then that was just that changed everything. Um, Anthony, how did you feel about that on the day using that as an actual tournament mission? Do you think that was a good represent, you know, a good representative mission, something different from the rulebook missions, and yet also given by Warlord? What do you think? Yeah, exactly that. I think it's really good to throw something new into the mix. It's because of those changes, it is slightly different to the other objective missions. The only thing I don't sort of like about it is the variation in the number of objectives when it comes down to, like, one objective. Me and Brian, when we played, we actually played that mission against each other at Banff, and the uh, we only had one objective. I find with just one objective, it come, becomes a little bit like hold until relieved, where everyone just jumps on that one objective yeah. and, fight, and fights to the death. Well, there was yeah. there is one neat mechanic with that mission that I really like. If it does come down to one objective, it's not like one player grabs it, puts it in their deployment zone, and then builds an army around it and says, you can't get it. Because you roll for the number of missions, or sorry, the number of objectives before you start deploying units, you put them down, you put down all the objectives. So if there's one, you put it down, then you roll for table side. So if you put it on one side, you could be, you know, potentially screwing yourself big time. So you yeah, have to actually be fair about where you put it. And I really yeah, we, like that. Not, not only fair, but you got to think a bit about it because um, we were playing, for instance, on a really heavily t- uh, terrained board with Bocage and um, everything. Oh, yeah. And I knew that to make it an interesting game for both of us and not have it come down to whoever rolled the more favorable side, table side, I put it out in the open in an area that was at least three inches away, like more than three inches away from any terrain. So whoever wanted to take it would have to come out in the open and 
hold on to it there. Um, just because I think if I'd put it somewhere, say, close to a building that was hardcover or behind a bit hypercarge, it would come down to who rolled that table side and then it would be kind of a little bit one-sided, where at least this would make a pretty exciting cinematic game. People would have to run out in the open and there should be some assaults. And I like that about bolts action, so I deliberately placed it because I was the one placing it in that mission out in the open away from terrain. Nice. But, yeah, yeah, and, it, a, and I seem to remember say. that working out for you pretty well. I think. Well, did you guys draw for that mission or... No, I lost. All oh, right, that's right. <laughs> I forgot that. Couldn't it was stop the, the second mission. That's right. Yeah, I we couldn't stop the hordes of Frenchmen. That's yeah. right. Yeah, the French colonials came on. Um, that that happened the day before too. Like in this big group battle, is I found what was really important is in this mission is you need some some mobility. Like if you've got some recce armored cars or wheeled vehicles of some kind, it's good to race out and claim the objectives early, and then have some follow up troops to hold them later. Yeah. So I suppose it's almost like in real history, to be honest. Like you just send your scouts out quickly, start start turning the counters over, and then then it's up to the enemy to take them off you. You know, and that's harder than taking them initially. So I find if you're designing your list and you know that mission's in the mix, try and try and get some mobility in there. Definitely, absolutely. I can't your um your Sikhs would have been amazing at that that mission. Uh, maybe they they hit. Uh, they, uh, sitting on top of objectives is not what my army does well, but you know we'll see. We'll see. Um, I may have to give it a go with with my Indian carrier spam list and see what happens. Um, yeah, I really like that mission in that it is a nice replacement if you're running a span of missions across a tournament. Um, it because vehicles can claim objectives and because it is an objective grab, I think it it mixes well with another objective mission and a maximum attrition type mission. I, I really think that um, every tournament, if, if you run it per day, should have sort of one maximum attrition type mission and you should have the rest be objectives. But I like how the tank battle mission, because vehicles can claim, kind of replaces demolition um, for that because it does give vehicle lists some vehicle lists a chance when they may not otherwise. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think it's really fun as well because you've got to come out and go out and like grab these objectives. You can't sort of turtle up if you're a really shooty army and just like state demolition. I've seen some players almost give up from the beginning and sort of turtle up and just make sure that you can't get their base and don't even bother going after yours. Just play for a draw. But with tank war mission, with all the objectives scattered around, it's actually pretretty encouraging for everybody just to go out and have a punt and it, it just feels really good it's a good mission agreed yeah i really like it when you roll like five and six missions and it just turns into this crazy mess where you're running all over the place um yeah I, I, it just feels like the chaos of battle to me yeah i quite like them a lot of objectives i just found when we had the one objective it was a little bit too much like hold until relieved with a single objective yeah but everyone just fights over and it just becomes basically maximum attrition in the middle. Yeah, there was a um, there was an old Melbourne 40k tournament mission that popped up a fair few times that I really liked and I think we ran an adaption of it at um I think even Q-Man ran a version of it although he didn't get it from us clearly. He get, I think he came up with it on his own where it was five missions or sorry, five objectives in one mission where you had one big one in the middle of the board. And then you had one objective in each table quarter. And the one in the middle was worth, I think, two. And the other ones were worth one. 
and it was whoever had the most at the end won. Um, and so it was just, you know, a free for all. Um, and yeah, I, I really like that because you had to, it really forced people not to just sit in a corner. I mean, as Brian was saying, it gets real cinematic real fast because you got to get out there and that's where the enemy is and you're going to be mixing it up. I mean, even, even saying that, if uh, we only had one objective, I still remember um, a squad of your Hungarians completely crossing the, the table, coming down my flank and taking out my two houses in my back line by themselves. That was pretty cool. Yeah, but it would have been nicer if there was an objective they could grab too. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm agreeing with you. The, the more objectives would have been better. How, would, how did you find fielding your Hungarians finally for the first time? Yeah, it was um, pretty good. I didn't do too well with them in the end. Just I think I came up against some hard opponents and they sort of knew how to counter the vehicles. But um, they were fun lists to try out. I'm definitely keen to run, try and run two Nimrods in the future. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. That was a cool vehicle. It's yeah, great, my, man. he was definitely the star of my army. Now that brings up an interesting point. Now uh, we, okay, I've been talking about the heavy auto cannon for a while now. I think Patch has too. Um, Anthony, how did you find? I mean, the Nimrod is a heavy auto cannon on a tank chassis that would just drive around and fire at people. Uh, how did you use it? How did you like it? Did you think the heavy auto cannon was an effective vehicle killer, or were you using it for something else? I definitely think it lives up to the hype you've been trying to give it, Brad, for a while now. I really liked Sweet. it. Um, the big plus for me was over, I know you guys have been looking at it as an artillery version, but to me, having it on a vehicle with a 360-degree arc is way worth more, a lot more than the artillery version is. Yeah. Just being able to move around and fire, not being stuck with a fixed view, uh, arc is, yeah, a thousand times better. But I was using it really as a good soft skin killer. Like in my first game, it um, forced my opponent to basically hide his truck in reserve because I kept putting it on ambush. And I had a pretty good commanding view off the table. So he was too afraid to bring his truck full of uh, assault engineers in, knowing that I've got two shots and I kill the truck on a three plus. Oh, it's beautiful. And you can shoot anywhere. It doesn't matter where he's out flanking from. Like, you've got a 360 arc. You got, and your long range, sorry, your yep. short range is pretty long. So I could easily touch see. both sides of his uh, deployment, both corners. So, yeah, yeah, he actually held it off for two turns before he decided to just go for it. And the first turn he moved it on, he hit it behind a hill. I couldn't see it. Second turn, he decided to just run for it, and I blew it up and killed the lieutenant inside and half his engineers. That's beautiful, cool. baby. Oh, that's music to my ears. Uh, dude, that is, yeah, that's, mm, that's good. 90 points for a Nimrod at, at regular. And, yeah, that gets you, what, a tankette? A 7-plus armor? 7-plus, yep. Oh, with the fl I mean, the flak rule's kind of meh, but... I mean, the fact that it's 360 degrees in a turret, that's huge. If I could take that vehicle in, I don't know, my German army, man, I would jump on it. I know the, Germ I know the Germans have a version, but they don't have something that's the same point value, do they? Or is, is the flak wagon? It's 95 points more because it's a half track. Sorry, it's, uh, it's 95 points more or 5 points more? Uh, sorry, it's 95 points. It's 5 points more. Okay, cool. But it's a half track, and that's the only difference. It's the uh, seven slash one. Yeah, but nobody makes a model for that. So, 
I think I may have to go get myself a Mad Bob miniatures uh, Nimrod or the uh, the Finn version and say my Germans confiscated it. <laughs> yes, I have an allied unit, man. It's all good. Yeah, um, exactly. The other good thing with the Hungarians is it's, I suppose the only downside with an Nimrod is it takes up your tank slot as opposed to like a ground-mounted one, which is your artillery. Um, but the yeah, the Hungarian Axis allied special rule lets you take a German unit. So if you wanted to take a big tank as well as an Nimrod, you can still do it, which is it's 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 not bad. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm sort of hit or miss on big tanks these days. So I I would almost rather just have one of those and back it up with um, other stuff. But yeah, that yeah, definitely, man. Yeah, that, man, that 360 degree arc is so huge. Um, the one game I got in with my fins um, where I had my Bofors heavy autocannon out, and that, I mean, Dave was able to outmaneuver it with some of his tanks, but it, I still had it pointed at his biggest tank and was putting holes in it. Um, I just rolled really badly with it, but I still pinned it six ways to Sunday. So, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think the 360-degree thing and the fact that you can move around to get into people's flanks and... Uh, that's huge, man. That's worth so much more than what an extra twenty points. Um, yeah. Well, funny enough, my Nimrods killed more vehicles in less games than my eighty-eight. <laughs> I love it. I in, love it. In my practice game, it even killed a Sherman. That's awesome. That's amazing. I love it. Uh, that's sensational. Uh, yeah. How did you find the eight hundred point armies? Um, F? It was a pretty interesting to list about. That point value, hey? Yeah, it was. Um, I've only really, I've only played a thousand point games. I've never sort of done the seven fifty or anything. So yeah, it was really good to, you know, you had to really make some hard decisions what you're going to drop out of those yeah. last those two hundred points to bring it down to eight hundred. Yeah, it's st- for me, it still felt like um, uh, same satisfaction as a thousand points. Um, didn't take as long, and it allowed a lot of newer guys to get involved, which is really cool. Hey, Brad, there was a lot of new faces that um, turned up for their first real event. Yeah, yeah, there really was. Like, I got to give a shout out to Pedro. I mean, Pedro won an army in the December event. Um, from wartime miniatures, they gave out an entire platoon of Australians. Well, Pedro won that. He then painted them entirely and bought you know the extra bits and pieces he need from you know wherever he could get them and built an entire 800 point army from scratch in what two months. And yeah, it, it looked amazing. And I think he came, oh goodness, I don't have it in front of me. What came third? Came fourth? Um, he was definitely, definitely the best Allied general. Yeah, he was the, the best, and he was the best Allied general yeah. on the day. Did a great job. Um, yeah. It was just amazing to see. So yeah, fantastic. Um, it was great to chat to as well. Like I'd, I'd only really seen him online discussing Australians, and obviously that's a passion of mine too. So I remember yeah uh helping him out with some of the historical or paint scheme stuff and it was really cool to see his army on the day and have a chat to him he's a really good boy yeah i i gotta give him a you know give him mass props for a lot of reasons like he was running uh universal carriers um and he took a sure i mean a stewart and so many times you see people taking stewards you know late war american lists with early war stewards oh they would be in there because they were still around okay that's fine but they probably would have been phased out he was like no i'm going to take exactly what they had he took yeah, um, yeah he was really yeah, yeah he took a medium a medium war stewart um sure it had recce but it didn't have the extra machine gun he was you know straight down the line was like this is what i want to do took it 
It looked great, and he had a great time playing with it, and he did well with it. And I was just like, you know what? That's amazing. That's that's yeah, that's bolt action right there. That to me, that was yeah, that was like Christmas all in and itself. In itself, it, it was really it was really cool in my first game. Um, like so, for, for instance, I took uh, French, uh, colonial French, North oh, Africans, yeah. Free French Foreign Legion, and Senegalese colonial troops, and I was playing. Um, Playing a couple of the new French players in Melbourne, there's two actual French guys that that I know you've um, invited along, and they've got some beautiful um, armies, and they're oh, both good looking. Up, um, yeah, Desert War armies as well. There was a one of the guys had um, an Eighth Army British force, and another one had a DAK uh, Africa yeah. Corps force. Yeah, and, Julian and, guy, and Enzo came out of nowhere, man. They're they're great yeah. players. Their stuff is so good. Um, and they and love it, Desert War, so I'm like, "Hey, best friends, how you doing?" What was what was really funny was Julian. Um, when I described what I was playing, I was playing French. He's like, "Oh yeah, my grandfather was in the Free French Army in North Africa. He fought for the Africa Corps, and he was in a 75 millimeter Artie crew." Oh. I was like, "Whoa, small worlds. <laughs> That's cool. That's um, amazing." Yeah, he's describing describing how his grandfather yeah digging digging entrenchments in the desert and basically needing tank gunner. Pretty cool. But he was playing Germans, so. <laughs> um, yeah, it was very it was very cool to play play those guys too. They were only um, only played Enzo, and he was I think um, finding it difficult to shoot at Frenchmen, but he still managed. It was good. Yeah, it was it was yeah. Those guys are rad, and so many other new guys. I mean, we had Tristan who came out of nowhere. Uh, I think he's a friend of. Um, I mean, I know he's a friend of Garrett's, but um, Garrett invited him along. Uh, they buddy, tried to run me over in the car park. Yeah. Didn't succeed. <laughs> you know, the rocket man's too tough for that sort of thing. Um, I but yeah. I wanted your Hungarian army. I paid him to do that. Uh, yeah. I thought he said something about the bloody French. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, dude. Um, I got to say, I got to give a shout out to Tristan. Brand new to wargaming, let alone bolt action. Like, came oh, out really? of nowhere. And in just a span of like three or four months, has made multiple tabletops of top grade terrain. It's amazing. Like his stuff is so sweet. So I'm really looking forward and I, I, I'm a little buried with school at the moment because we just started up, but I am super looking forward to getting a game with him. And man, I am, uh, I'm also going to hunt down my old buddy, Garrett. Um, Garrett's my new famous, my, my nemesis is <laughs> down in uh, Melbourne. And uh, yeah, Garrett was there on the day with his FJ, his Fulsham Jaeger, and uh, yeah, I'm super keen to get a game in with those bros, and um, yeah, just have some fun, man. It's cool yeah, it to see great. so many good new people. Yeah, it was great to meet all these new Melbourne players. Yeah. Oh, I feel like I'm forgetting to name, like, everybody, but everyone there was so cool. You know, we had Aaron, who'd never played in an event. He came along, uh, and, you know, th- it wasn't like... You know, people were like, oh, I don't know how to play. I'm getting steamrolled. Like, it was such a friendly, awesome environment. My only gripe, and I sh- as a TO, the only thing I feel like I probably should have done was keep it at 750 points because I feel like the power level jumped by allowing 50 after points. I know that's probably just, you know, my, I don't know, TO paranoia, but the the aggression of the armies, I mean, it wasn't huge but it things crept up a little bit and it was people adding 50 points to their lists because a lot of the same lists made the appearance between you know both events 
So, yeah, I think 750 points is perhaps a sweet spot, and I think 1,000 points is a sweet spot, and, like, boltaction.net does, um, I think that is, like, 1250, like Mark Dog does. I think that would be a sweet spot as well. I haven't played that version yet, but I'm looking forward to getting to 1250 points at some point. Brian, you just played a version of that. What did you think? Of the 1250 points? Yes. Yeah, we played that on Saturday in that social game I mentioned earlier at El, the El Alamein, like, big big battle. We had two Italian armies on one side of the table, and then Tobu had his Australians, on, and I had my French facing them. And the 1250 points meant we had all the toys, like, everything you could possibly want. Um, but we played on pretty big tables, and like you said, there was, like, six objectives in the tank war mission, so we were just scrambling everywhere. We had so many troops, you could just throw stuff and go, like, you could gamble a bit more and and be not too worried about something getting taken out. So it was, it was pretty fun. And we actually got it done pretty quick because we were quite um, reckless, I suppose, <laughs> just oh, racing nice. around the desert, around, up and down these roads and trucks and um, lots of assaults. It was pretty cool. I think 1250 points could really slow down any competitive environment um, if people are getting cautious and really thinking about every, every decision too long because there was a lot of stuff on the table. But in a, in, a, in a fun social game where you're just going for it, it was it was really fun to be able to use that much stuff and not have to leave out all your favorite toys that you don't often get to field. Yeah, so, I'm, a, I'm gonna have to fun. ask. I'm gonna have to ask Mark Dog how he and his crew do it when they get to because I know they run 1250 on the regular and um, yeah, I was wondering how that would fit in because I there's definitely a. a a slowdown in speed between 750 and 1,000, and I was wondering if that sort of same amount of slowdown continued further to go down to 1,250, or if I'd be guessing it's not the same proportion, because usually from from 1,000 to 1,250, it might just be a, um, that big tank you had left out. might be one or two more units, just the big stuff that you had to cut. True. Um, unless Unless you really had considered running a horde and going nuts and getting as many dice in as you can. I think it's usually adding people adding that toy they had to leave out usually. Yeah. So, yeah. Agreed. Awesome, man. Well, hey, before I forget, I do really want to take the time. Uh, I want to thank, of course, Warlord Games for supporting us. They sent out a great package of uh, prizes. Ian from War and Peace Games. I know John was talking about possibly coming down to play, and he couldn't at the last minute. But, man, War and Peace Games have just supported the scene and supported our tournament unbelievably. Um, in fact, we actually had an extra um, Panther prize that they provided for the tournament that we actually ran out of players because a few people dropped that we're going to be giving away as part of a giveaway shortly through the website. So War and Peace Games, not just providing support for the tournaments, but for uh, you know this podcast and for you guys, our listeners. Um, so, guys, if you are in Australia... They, look, you'll hear the commercial in the break. They have tons of stuff. I'm a huge fan. Um, also, I mean, uh, campaign, books, and games, um, they provided some JTFM stuff, and they also provided some Osprey books. Absolutely fantastic stuff. If you're looking for any you know, of those things, look them up. And um, Laser Touch, with all of those awesome laser-cut you know, pin markers and objectives, he, the you know Craig, the owner of that, just buried us in stuff, um, and and I was just handing them out like candy. It was amazing. People, you know, from the beginning, people were all using little dice and you know this, that, and the other thing. And by the end, 
you know, everyone was using proper pin markers, and they're having a great time. It was great. And Blitzkrieg miniatures, of course, can't look past it. Some of my favorite models. God, I love those guys. And they threw us a mouse that everyone was fighting over over the course of the weekend. So, um, yeah, it was a really relaxed, fun environment because no one was playing for sheep stations. Um, everyone was there just, you know, everyone was going to walk away with prizes. Um, and it wasn't for the glory so much as it was to play a game and have some fun, man. People were, you know, taking some risks, learning the game, or just, um, you know, just having fun. I had a really good time, and I hope you guys did too. Yeah, mate, yeah, it was definitely worth flying down for. I'll be back if there's any more Melbourne events, if I can, because it's just, I really liked that bunch of guys. I think everyone just super relaxed and fun, and, and everyone had put quite a bit of effort into painting their army, so some really nice stuff there, and some really different armies too. Yeah. Like, there's, there's Partisans, there's DAK. Um, I didn't see any Japanese yet, but hopefully maybe maybe next time. There was just a, a cool mixture of stuff there and cool mixture of guys. It's good. Yeah. Well, the Gumby was Japanese. I was hoping, and then it didn't come to work. Uh, I do also have to give a shout-out to my boy Tony. Uh, Tony, who um, got his army in the mail just you know right before the event, hammered it together, sprayed it all, um, got it you know playable on the table. I know he's going to be detail painting it up, but uh, Tony, I also want to get another game against you, brother. So I had your first game of bolt action, but I want to you know a proper one now that you know what you're doing, and I want you to uh, show me how to play now. So yeah, good times. Amph, what do you think? Yeah, no, it was a great event. A lot of great people, and I'm looking forward to the next one. Boom. All right. Um, on that note, I think uh, we are going to go to break, and we will be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for another competition. BoldAction.net, in conjunction with the Assault Group and Campaign Books and Games Logistics, has a bunch of prizes to give away. With all these great companies providing us miniatures for World War II in 28mm these days, we are quite spoilt for choice, but there are still times when the exact thing that we're looking for isn't available. So listener, we want you to send in pictures of your bold action conversions. The competition will end on the 17th of April, when we will pick our five favourites. Prizes include some of the Assault Group's latest blisters of late war Germans, as well as some JTFM vehicles from Campaign Books and Games Logistics. There is an article and a forum post on boldaction.net with further details. So get out there and start converting. And welcome back to the Ghost Army Podcast. And right now we have a special guest all the way from our nation's capital, the now famous TO of CanCon in 2015, Mr. Peter West. How are you going, Peter? Very good. Thank you very much. <laughs> I don't know about famous, but uh, thank you. <laughs> oh, mate, amongst, amongst the guys, yeah, we all know you now. You, you put on a great event. <laughs> Cheers. I appreciate it. And I, I guess that's a good place to start. I think. I mean, it was a really great event. I really enjoyed TOing. It, it was. It's my first time as a TO. Um, you know, I played plenty of time, times, 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 but in tournament, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And a lot of that was to do with the. Uh, Great, great players who turned up for the event. A lot of old faces I'd known from other events, but we had a we had a decent number of new guys as well. So it was a, a lot of fun. Hey, Peter, when you say old faces, are you talking about me? Because um, <laughs> today is my fortieth birthday, so uh, I kind of feel like uh, I feel like that was at me. Well, yeah, <laughs> I can't give you too much stick, Brad, because <laughs> I just turned forty-one. So you know, <laughs> oh, happy birthday. 
Thank you. <laughs> Here we go. Right on. All right, continue. Sorry, sorry for the bad interrupt. That's all right. <laughs> Look, I, I mean, I'm sure some of some of your listeners have seen some of the comments I've made online about about the CanCon. Um, and I thought it was a very interesting comp, especially off the back of Moab. Um, it was turned out to be quite a different comp in terms of the tournament, in terms of the lists we saw, um, and which kind of surprised me. It seemed to be quite a step away from where we'd been. The tournament scene on the at least this coast of Australia had been going for a while. Um, it was very much allied dominated. We had uh, two to one allied versus Axis lists. Um, and uh, a really interesting list that uh, what what we'd been seeing in the past was a lot of sort of light tanks, mortars, um, number of inexperienced troop lists, medium artillery was getting played a lot. And this time it was really very different sorts of lists. Lots of veteran troops and veteran vehicles, which, you know, never seen a veteran vehicle before, I think, um, this tournament. Um, lots of medium tanks, seeing AT guns, both medium and heavy AT guns. And the you know, pretty small dice list, so I was quite surprised. I mean, Brad, your list, which I believe was 14 dice, was the biggest list there. I almost want to say, I know, it's been a few weeks, and I've, you know, TO'd something since then. I want to say it was 15, but okay. uh, I could be wrong. No, it is definitely 15. I just brought it up on my phone. Okay. So, I mean, that was the biggest list we had, and we had a list. So, you know, it was a, a very different type to what I had played in before and what had I sort of just seen at Moab only a, a couple of months ago. So it was a lot of fun to run, and it, 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 the end results were interesting. The Brits, as you all know, Brad came out on top, but the uh, Allies really dominated this time around. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't... I'm not sure how much to read into that. Um, part of it is that... It's for reasons you know I don't under, I don't particularly know. The German players didn't seem to have bring optimized lists. I mean, you know, Anthony uh, rocked the eighty-eight, which is oh yeah, um, <laughs> that was great optimized. Yeah, we're gonna get to that in a minute. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> that was that was really great, um, especially uh, to see the eighty-eight square off against the Sturm Tiger. Oh, so um, cinematic. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, we we had things like Strom Tigers, and um, it's and most of the German lists were rocking LMGs, even though they were 20, full twenty point LMGs. So I'm kind of reluctant to draw too many conclusions about that. But um, yeah, it was just a, a very interesting um, uh, range of lists that I saw and that we saw at CanCon, and um, I'll be very interested to see it. And the sort of next tournament, um, which we might talk about a bit later, WinterCon that I'll be running. What what sort of lists um, I see popping up there? What's whether we're seeing a trend develop or this was just an anomaly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you can necessarily. I, you know, I I'm, I know we're talking generalizations here, but um, I feel like I could kind of weigh in a little bit since um, mine was the the best list supposedly. Well, not the best list, but I won with it. Um, I took a British list for those of you who didn't listen to the LRDG or follow up, um, with how we were doing it online. It was a bunch of Indian carriers with a bunch of regular guys inside, just riflemen. There's a couple of SMGs. And when I say a couple, I think the entire army had five. Um, I had a regular 
Lee Mark One, which is the vulnerable catches on fire or not catches on fire, just the the really sucky one. Um, Twenty five pounder um, and a couple of eight man rifleman squad and a blackguard bombard and a medium mortar. So I, I I literally you know had taken it to a few of my friends who then looked at it and said, "Do not turn this in. This is stupid. It does not make sense." Which is why I turned it in. And um, yeah, it. I actually forgot what my national rule was, and I didn't use it once on the weekend, um, which was tough as boots, which showed you how useful it was. Actually, it would have been useful in a few combats, but um, I felt like a, there were a few lists out there that sort of bucked trends, um, and I'd like to think mine was kind of one of them. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It was, uh, it was I, I an interesting... I thought your list was really interesting, Brad, and you know, I've made this comment online. I think that you know, what I found interesting is it was similar in some respects to the German list you took to Moab in terms of being a very high mobility list. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I found you did quite well at Moab and you obviously did very well at CanCon and that, you know, it's made me rethink mobility in this game. Um, I had, you know, I sort of transports as something to bring troops on the board of which they either got out of and shot something or just got out of. Um, yeah. But, you, you know, you... You were using it very tactically, and it was—it's great to see, um, you know, so different sorts of tactics developing in in the in the bolt action um, r- within the bolt action rules and tournament scene. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, the the DAC army I ran at Moab, um, I think, it, and now Brian, you were the TO there. Um, I came third, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, it was it was it was a similar philosophy. Yeah, just making sure you can move about the board and do yeah. what you need to do. Well, the, the deck list was was very much veteran squads with, you know, the three veteran squads laden with um, SMGs in horches, hammering people with a lot of other highly mobile units zipping around, grabbing stuff, and, you know, a base of guys that just sort of held things. Um, this, uh, that still felt a little too conventional for me, which is where the Sikh army came from. Um, I actually played a friendly game and whip pulled models out of a case and just said, well, I'll put these guys here, these guys here, these guys here. And and unlike most armies where I put a ton of thought into the listing, I did that. Um, I just sort of threw models on the table and started playing and realized I loved the way it played. Uh, and then I, and poor Brian and Anthony and, you know, the guys in boltaction.net, I then spent a week agonizing over every point um, in the like 20 extra points I had left over to try and make it not crazy. And I ended up just giving up. So yeah, anyway. But so, uh, one, I guess one other result we should mention is that uh, best um, minor power general was uh, Brian's Hungarian list. Oh yeah. Default, default. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, but <laughs> the, two, the two best words in the English language. Yeah, it was um, it was an honor and a kind of a funny moment um, that Amph, Amph uh, noticed straight away before we got down there on the weekend when you released like who was playing what before the yeah. event, what these were being, what nations were being taken, and Amph's like. Brian, Brian, you're, you're automatically winning the best minor power as it stands, um, which leads into like your sort of comment before about the armies are a really different mixture at CanCon because there was only one minor power as opposed to Moab where there was quite a few. Um, yeah. And I think, I, I think there's not much to read into it other than people are just rotating around and trying all the different toys out. I think yeah. people like bringing a different army to every event, so it's kind of like dependent 
on what project that each player has worked on for that event as to a completely random mix. I don't think people are particularly picking armies just to win that is trying out new stuff. Um, like Brad with his six, it keeps the f- scene pretty fresh when people try out new things. So, and the 88 with Amph. Definitely. Um, I, read, I agree I with that. I can... the Hungarians are overpowered. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I deliberately took. I deliberately, deliberately didn't. I mean, you can't really list Hungarians. I think to be ultra competitive, you can be a little bit um, brazen with some of the listing. If you wanted to take the Howitzer tanks, like a lot of them, I think they're quite powerful. Um, and I think at one stage I was considering taking two of those. Um, the Zrinyi twos. They're basically like a medium Howitzer assault gun. Um, so you can take two or three in a list, and they're pretty nasty. But I just felt I don't know. I don't like being that guy that turns up and someone looks at my army and goes, oh, wow, this is going to be painful. I don't, I'm not going to enjoy this. I don't want that. I want someone to look at my army and go, oh, that's cool. That's something different. Hungarians, you know, how does that work? What's going on here? Um, there's a bit of variety in the list. It's not all dependent on one, one unit that's going to win or wipe the other guy out. So I just took one in the ends and took a Hetzer. Now, I'm glad you, as had, a, as you said that. How do you think the Hetzer went? How did you like the Hetzer? Because I'm in love with that tank, but I haven't used yeah. it recently. I, love, I, mean, I mean, my army was themed around um, the Hungarian assault gun units, and they had a really ad hoc mixture of their own homegrown, homegrown design, the Zrinyi, and then a lot of German-supplied vehicles like the Hetzer and the Stuck. So thematically, it, it worked for me. I had a late war feel, like a Siege of Budapest feel, where they were just had, like they were stuck in a cauldron and they had a mixture of assault guns, so it, it, it works with history-wise for me, and that's always the, my first thing. Um, and the Hetzer, I loved having it. It was just made me feel better about um, playing in any mission against any opponent. I felt I didn't have too much of a blind spot when it came to, say, armor, ruining my day, because I didn't want to spe- um, have my Zrenyi, which is really in any infantry vehicle, running around trying to hunt tanks all game. I wanted a, a Hetzer to back it up, and... Um, you have to be very careful deploying the Hetzer. I think it's got an amazing like range on it. Um, it can really reach out and hurt enemy tanks, but it's got vulnerable sides as one of its rules. Yeah. And um, and its frontage is pretty narrow. So I found that the arc, you can't really get right up into the enemy, um, into their face without exposing your flank and just having to take risks. So you've got to be careful with how you use it. But it's a cool little vehicle. And um, it was a great compliment to those Zrenyi, to be honest. I think I really liked that. It, 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 it's pretty hard, I think, with a, any tank and the one dice rolling. You have to roll three dice, basically, in a row to get your result you need to take out an enemy vehicle. And I did find it fell down a lot where I'd hit a lot. I'd hit a T-34 or a, or a Sherman or something big and just either fail to penetrate or if I did penetrate, roll a one or something. So, ah. you know, it's, it's, it depends if your dice are going well as well. But it was cool to have and I'd, I'd definitely take it again. It was fun. The Hungarians in general were quite fun to play with. Actually, they weren't. They're not very over the top. Um, they're pretty pretty basic with their infantry builds and everything. But it just adds something different, and they look really different. And, and it was interesting for like especially the Russian players. They got to play two different Soviet armies, and that was great. I know Pete sort of um, was mindful to try and give people historical matchups in their games because you know we are playing a World War Two game. It's kind of part of the reason we're playing it. It's for the history side. So. It was really fun just to be on like a snow table taking on a Russian army, which is basically what I dreamed about doing. While I'm spending hours painting this army is actually facing a Russian army and big horde coming at you. It was pretty cool. Played, played yeah. a, a really fun bunch of games against some really nice Russian armies, and it felt right. It was good. Definitely. Yeah. It was a great looking army. I couldn't stop taking pictures of the hits, so I went back and looked at the photos I took in CanCon. I think I, I think I took about 
20 different pictures of your head of your head sir <laughs> yeah, he was fun he was good he um yeah it was it was it was, it was some really nice terrain I must, I must say peter i know a lot of it was your collection so thanks for bringing that that was it was a great bunch of boards there was some yeah. cool challenging ones like i was like a, i think a dutch one i played on this huge big like um suspension bridge in the middle and um, rivers everywhere and fields and, and windmills and it was just really cool yeah i played on that one as well it was sensational now peter that actually brings me to a question um, I was playing on one of the boards, and it had what looked like a giant vac-formed Reichstead on it. It was yes. a huge building. Where did that come from? Who makes that? Um, it's from a company called Amira, A-M-E-R-A. Uh, they make vac-form terrain. So a lot of the hills and stuff at CanCon were um, vac-form from them. So uh, nice. they're... They're good. They're very simple. You know, you just got to do a little bit of trimming and um, uh, paint them and flock them, and they're ready to go. So they're they're a pretty simple way. Unfortunately, there's um, uh, distribution in Australia is a bit limited. So I got that as a direct order from overseas, which you know I think cost me more than I would ever admit. But um, that <laughs> Reichstag really sealed the deal. It's a it's a great centerpiece. Oh, it's so good. So good. Now, now we talked about things earlier. Anthony, you mentioned it. Let's talk about it. Actually, someone else mentioned it. The 88. What do you think? Uh, all right. I, I went over it a little bit in the LRDG. If anyone wants to listen to that to get my uh, ideas straight after the event. But I stand by him anyway. It was good to get him down on the table. Would I do it again in a tournament? Probably not. Uh, it's... An expensive model, in points wise, uh, it done well in two games. Well, well, I mean, it got a kill. One game it done really well. It killed a uh, storm tiger. Yeah, baby, hunting big cats. But uh, most of the other games, it's just that fixed uh, view. The fixed arc didn't really help a lot. I even had um, a person bring in air on me, and he just brought the plane in from the side, so I couldn't even shoot at it. Oh, that's frustrating. Yeah, that's and most of the time, my opponents just kept their vehicles away from it, which in itself can be good, but when it's taking up nearly 20% of your points, it didn't really help. Yeah. Did you, on in the missions where you didn't have to tow it on, were you able to use the um, the half-track truck, the only one the Germans have that can tow around an 88 did you find that that was um, useful for other units? Um, not really. In the end, I actually played a pretty defensive list because I didn't have the infantry. That was the big problem. I didn't really have the infantry to last because I'd sunk so many points into the 88 and the uh, Brandenburgers. So I and, did find... And the stew? And, yeah, but the stew actually paid for itself, so... I suppose, yeah. <laughs> those, those are points well spent. But, Does um, the fact that you can now get a 10-point toe with the horse limber in the Ostfront book change your views on how whether you might take an 88 again? Uh, not really, because it only saves you about 30 points. But, look, I loved playing it for, like, just putting it down on the table and that. Um, I definitely won't... I would definitely take it again in fun games. Uh, the 10-point toe definitely would help, I'd say, with some of the smaller heavy anti-tank guns and stuff like that. But because you get the dual role with the 88, 
you end up paying like 40 points over most other nations' super heavy anti-tank guns. Like a 17-pounder, I think, is uh, 140 points or something like that. Mm, yeah. When you say when you say dual wall, it's really only one d six he, so it's like an equivalent of a white howitzer. Yeah, is not amazing? It's a really yeah. expensive twenty five pounder. <laughs> yeah, it looks amazing though. It was so cool. It looks like it's more like mini diorama on the table with your scenic base. Like it's just epic. Yeah. yeah, I do have to paint the two kill rings on it though. I still haven't got around to that yet. Yep, you gotta do it, man. And you Nimrod, Nimrod, Nimrod needs some kill rings from the. Melbourne event too. <laughs> um, other than the Storm Tiger, though, I think it killed um, a Bren carrier, which is its other kill ring. <laughs> and hey, it's a kill maybe, ring. Yeah, it's an armored vehicle, so it counts. That's and right. half half a dozen infantry. But yeah, the big problem was just the um, fixed position. Um, I was going to use it to recrew my Nebelwaffers or my Nebelwerfer, mm-hmm. but that didn't really come up in any of the games. Usually they... Uh, I actually lost the 88 to assaults twice because I was playing assault-heavy armies. And so by losing the gun to an assault, obviously all the crew are dead, and I couldn't recrew it because the gun's destroyed in when you lose an assault. Yeah. And in the other games, uh, my Nebelwerfer didn't die, so I never had to send crew over. So... That grand plan of you know using the seven man crew to help recrew another gun never came into fruition. Damn. Yeah. Well, I I did take that tactic on, um, and while I didn't have guns in my list for uh, the Gumby list for the eight hundred point tournament, the next time I'm planning to run a thousand point Japanese list, I I do have. I mean, Japanese guns are super resilient because they have extra crew, which you know in essence gives them extra hit points. Well, if you, it kind of gives me that feeling of, well, maybe I should take two platoons and take one big gun and maybe take one of those little tiny pop guns that's so, you know, kind of crappy um, and throw smoke out um, and just have fun with it. And if, hey, oh, you killed it, if people are going to bother shooting, well, then I can recrew. But if you happen to kill the big gun, well, then those little guys can go over and just playing your little shell game. But, yeah, I don't know. It's such a situational thing, but if you keep that in your back pocket... The time when you get to use it, it can be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. If people won't expect it, it's pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. Uh, hey, Peter, tell us what else. Um, I mean, sorry, we've sort of digressed around, but um, what were some of the other things you wanted to talk about for CanCon? Um, look, I just I'll make quick mention. We had a third day at CanCon, the Tank War Day. Um, it was a, a bit of a reduced crowd. So we had 26 for the first two days of the comp, which was really great. Um, we had a smaller group hang around for the third day and we played a tank war tournament. Um, I had, uh, there were, uh, six of us playing in that, um, including Anthony and, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I hadn't, 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 re- hadn't, I hadn't personally played tank wars before and I got to put down some KV2s. Nice. Um, and the highlight of my weekend was, uh, my opponent with, uh, two tigers foobarring and, uh, shooting the nearest tiger. So there's a, oh. Great, great, great shot of uh, two tigers sitting next to each other. One with the turret pointed at the other tiger. So it was a that was the highlight of my weekend. Anyway, that's awesome. Did it? Did I, it? I, did I, it hit and damage? damage? Yeah. And no, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> <It did. laughs> 
<laughs> I put it down to the awesome foliage he had decorating the tanks. They just yeah, <laughs> it was really good yeah, camouflage. Yeah. They were too well camouflaged. They couldn't even pick each other out from three meters away. <laughs> That's awesome. And when you say three meters, you mean three inches on the actual tabletop, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. Um, yeah. And uh, no, but... just a just note in passing that, the, you know, Robert Vella, who took out that uh, tank war tournament, um, it was interesting. You know, there were a couple of big cat armies, but, um, you know, Robert, who took it out, was a, you know, pretty mixed medium light tank army. So it was uh, just goes to show you the value of those uh, medium tanks with the medium AT guns. Now, he was playing – now, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. He was playing Americans or Russians? Dak. Dak, man. Oh, of course. I, we were talking Dak. I'm an idiot. I knew I was talking with him during because I played Rob over the course of the weekend. Yeah. That's right. Um, he had a lot of oh, – I'm going to get this wrong again. Panzer threes. Am I making this up? Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, Panzer threes. Okay, cool. Yeah, those are rad-looking tanks too. So, yeah, cool. Awesome, man. What, what else did you get away from the... Uh, sorry. I was going to say, I rang my Hungarians, and that was actually a really fun day too, Peter. I really liked the missions you picked out for it. And, yeah, I'd really like to see some more tank war events in the future. Definitely. Yeah, I think, I think we may have to have one in Melbourne soon. I think that would be a good time. Yeah, it's definitely fun to throw down all those tanks you end up acquiring over the time you spend building numerous armies like we do it's fun with the games quicker than normal because you've only got like one dice or two dice a unit and not many units yeah uh, I, sorry peter sorry go. go anthony i was gonna say i definitely found uh my games went quick yeah and just i was only allotting two hours for the tank war games whereas the um for the Saturday and the Sunday for the main tournament, I was allowing two and a half hours for the game. So definitely, you know, people got them done quicker. Yeah, that's another advantage. It's quick and it's fun. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Um, what other things did you take away from the event, Peter? I, I mean, I, I love CanCon. It's, it, besides the fact that it's a gigantic tin shed that is like 10,000 degrees and filled with sweaty dudes, um, I was really glad that we were in the other pavilion this year. Um, we weren't crammed in with every other game system and their dog, typically 40K and fantasy. Um, that room seemed to be an extra 10 or 15 degrees hotter um, and smelled something epic. Um, but yeah, our, our room was quite civilized. It was quite nice. We should do that again sometime. It was. Um, look, I think the, the sort of last thing I take away is that, and, and this sort of leads me on to the future, is that you know, I, I walked away from CanCon with a sense that, you know, we sort of refined bolt action to a very high um, high degree in the tournament scene and, and what's being played in, at, at the moment. You know, it's, it's flowing smoothly. We've worked out most of the rule issues. Um, you know, people are uh, playing interesting lists and, but, you know, getting it done. And, you know, I think we've really sort of, you know, refine the, that sort of thousand point game scene to a to a pretty sharp point at the moment. And it, yeah. You know, it's working well, and there's a lot of people in the bolt action community who uh, played a number of games, and we're also because it's you know flowing so well, people are able to come in from the outside and integrate relatively easily. I mean, we had a player at CanCon who had never actually thrown thrown down dice in a full game of bolt action before, and I. 
I think if he, he came somewhere in the top 20. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think that, I think it's worth the, the scene and the, and the whole bolt action um, games have been really refined down and it's, it's working pretty well at the moment from a tournament perspective and from a community perspective. Agreed. Nice. Yeah, I, I just I absolutely loved the scene. I thought it was fantastic. It was yeah, it was all that in a tall bag of snacks. That's one so, point I was gonna gonna make is um I think we we talk a lot about tournaments or so we use the word tournament a lot on this cast and other casts I know, but um for anyone out there who's listening, um I think the way to look at tournaments or think about them is they're just great ways of all great ways for all the different people who play bolt action from all over the scattered around Australia to come together and just play against a bunch of guys um, that might not know yet and armies they've never seen seen before. And I know it's like got a competitive guys over it. But a lot of people I notice just rock up and just want to play five games of bolt action with their army they've painted. And that's great. I really like that. I think it's, um, I think it's not purely a competitive thing. I think bolt action events are actually a way that the game grows because I mean, as you know, like, 28 mil games, war games look really good visually, and there's a lot of people stopping by um, this year, checking out the tables. Oh, what's this game? You know, like this huge, beautiful World War II train and, and and painted armies and tanks rolling around. Like it looks great from a distance, and it's a good way to actually recruit new people into the scene um, and just show that we are bolt action is being played. You watch like people leave the tournament area it's like spectators or passers through would come along have a chat to someone on one of the edge tables and then you'd see him later at, a, at one of those retailers or the traders just buying an army it was really cool yeah absolutely yeah. and yeah the retailers were doing uh, a healthy trade too there was so many yeah just they, first of all there was a lot of people selling 28 mil or 156 or 148 world war ii um it was such a good selection, and it was flying out the door. Um, I think it just speaks lots about where the game's going. I know that um, some people were playing Chain of Command at uh, CanCon, but I don't think that event was as big as uh, the Bolt Action event. So, I mean, whoever's playing is still buying 28 mil models, and it's still rad. So, yeah, it's just it's really cool to see. As you say, it's really cinematic at 28 mil. So, yeah, cool. Um, so, you know... What I was, uh, I just pick you up on Brian's point. I guess of the twenty six players, we had a you know real spectrum of people who were really historically focused and just wanted to focus on the history of their army and get that out and play it on the table. There were people who were you know focusing on the competitive aspect, and there were people who just wanted to come along and have five games. So, and I think you know pretty much all of them walked away from the tournament. And I know I, I saw this at Moab as well having enjoyed themselves, you know, no matter what, why they came or what their motivation for playing was that everyone, you know, was able to be accommodated and within the tournament and enjoyed themselves. Yeah. And that's no mean feat. So well done, Pete. That was cool. Absolutely. So I guess I'll, I'll take the opportunity now to plug, plug my next event um, and talk a little bit about Wintercon. Um, Please do. Just just on the back of what we were saying, I think, um, and I should I should mention up front, um, uh, WinterCon will be a, uh, a joint production, um, not only myself this time, but uh, Anthony's uh, coming in to help us out, and um, most critically, the man, the myth, the legend, Patch, will be um, by my side 
bringing 100% improvement to the WinterCon <laughs> in tournament. Amazing. But um, and I've been talking with him, and you know, we talked about the experience and what we saw at CanCon, and um, and I think you know we're going to try and shake things up a little bit, just because you know things are going well. But you know, let's see what what else we can try. So. The format for WinterCon, um, which is going to be 18, 19 July, back at Epic in Canberra. Um, but uh, it's going to be a slightly different format. It'll be two two days, again, but two full days of um, three Sorry. games. So you said two two days. You mean two one day? Sorry, two one day, yes. Yeah, there we go. Um, and it'll be, you know, the first day will be an early war tournament of three games. And so we're saying early war is anything up to the Battle of El Alamein, and that'll be a thousand point lists. And um, day two, we're going to try a twelve hundred and fifty point list, um, and you can bring along any force, but we'll be got, we'll be three games of twelve hundred and fifty points. That's exciting, man! I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm oh, super excited about. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to be able to make that, but oh, I just it sounds so good. I especially like the early war idea. I think it's going to be fun to see people bring out those armies that they've got in their collection, which they may not feel could be up to taking on all comers in an open event. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of early war, so I've got a couple of armies for that. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to decide which one to bring. <laughs> it's going to be fun. Yeah, definitely. Uh. Yeah, it's- it seems a pretty popular period, and we're and we've got a pretty positive reaction to running an early war event. So, looking forward to that. I think there's um, we're going to see some really uh, great looking armies. There's some of those minor early war powers have just got such funky vehicles. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what what people bring. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of minor powers you don't see that often. I know people have got them in their collections, um, but I think that's a good, uh, like you said, good. Way. Um, historical fans usually collect the minor powers, so I think that's, that's a great way to do that. And then have the open event for, for everybody on the Sunday, and that's cool. And especially having the two one day events is great because people have family commitments on one of the days, they can come to the other and games still get some order dice on the table. Definitely, yeah, absolutely. People will be able to play one day or the other, or if they're feeling superhuman, they'll be able to play straight through both days. Yeah, exactly. Well, I've uh, I've been painting a, a ton of. Well, there's this minor power. Maybe you've heard of them, Germany. Um, I've been I've been painting a few German tanks since uh, CanCon. Uh, actually, since the last episode when Anthony, um, you know, asked me how my German army was going, jerk. Um, and one of the things I've pulled out um, is a six rad, and I just have to say I am absolutely stunned at how good this tank looks painted up. Um, and it's just one of those things you don't see very often because it's early war. Um, yeah. I did, when I bought it, it was, you know, when I first started bolt action and I didn't realize it, it was early war. And then I got it and went, oh, no, <laughs> that's not in any of the selectors I can use. Um, but, you know, I've had it and I painted it and, man, I can't wait to put it on the table at some point. So, yeah, early war stuff is just so cool. And, um, Pete, when, when do you think the player's pack or information will be out for people to sort of navigate that early war, as in what's, what's a guideline for your forces and, and things like that? Do you think that will be available in the next few months? Or? Yeah, very, very soon. We're um, bouncing around a draft of that player's pack at the moment, and um, 
uh, just getting feedback from Patch and Anthony, and I'm actually hoping it will be out um, uh, definitely before the end of February. Fantastic. Awesome. There's plenty of time for people to get some uh, some projects finished in the in their painting queue for July, July 19th, 20th, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I think we wanted to give people some time because they, they're going to have to, you know, probably they'll want to add a few things to fit into early war potentially yeah. or just they need to expand the forces they've got for twelve for the 1,250-point um, day. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Well, given that we've seen a few players just crank out entire beautiful brand-new armies, uh, I don't think it's completely unreasonable to uh, – expect a few people to paint up entire new early war armies um, that just follow a really cool historic theme. And I'm hoping you see a bunch of those. Absolutely. Yeah, it's good. Nice. I got to paint up my early war Forshamjager with the four flamethrower list from Mibani Mal. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, you are on one hand vaguely historic and on the other hand a very bad person. <laughs> So. Not even vaguely. They had heaps of flamethrowers. Yeah, I know. And they didn't have literally anything else. So, yeah. Um, yeah. We will definitely talk about the uh, on that raid because I was watching a cool documentary about it on a future uh, Ghost Army podcast. Although, th- feeling multiple infantry flamethrowers m- may just hurt. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'll be trying out some of those funky vehicles you mentioned, Peter. All the weird, odd, and wonderful French colonial vehicles will be coming at you in July, mate. Excellent. So. Looking forward to it. Nice. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you for coming on, Peter. Um, I know you're going to be elsewhere on this episode, so um, on that note, we won't say a goodbye, but a, um, we will be talking to you shortly. Always a pleasure. Talk to you later. All right, man. Talk to you soon. Here in Australia... The historical wargaming scene is supported by the amazing team at War and Peace Games. With a massive stock of miniatures from World War II all the way back to Ancients, the selection is endless. Their World War II ranges include Warlord, Artisan, Rubicon and the new Mini Irons. They also have carry cases as well as all the hobby supplies you need to get your bold action army ready for the table. Ian, John and the crew provide incredible customer support. So check them out at warandpeacegames.com.au or give them a call now. And we're back again to the, at the Ghost Army podcast and we've got a pretty uh, famous guest here. It's uh, none other than Dave Brugman of the Demo Gamers. How you doing, Dave? Doing fantastic and famous. Well, there you go. Internet famous, uh, oh, yeah. convention <laughs> famous. Um, Melbourne wargaming scene famous, um, just all around awesome guy famous. I, I, there's so many different <laughs> levels of famous that you actually tick the boxes of. So yeah, I think we can just <laughs> safely say you're famous. Oh, okay, there you go. Boom. So and having fun at the same time. That's it. I actually f- forgot to mention at CanCon, David. By the way, we had people on the forums asking, "We was there anything wrong because you hadn't been on very much? Because you, I think it was the lead up to CanCon with all the." work you guys were putting in and we actually had people saying oh we haven't seen any posts from david for a while like yeah what's happened if you saw the board we had at cancon you've seen how much work we've been to get into that we have been play testing that um saint mary glee's board with all the paratroop drops and everything else mm-hmm. and so most weekends we were practicing with our rulers and their bits of paper and and getting it so it was balanced 
And the proof in the pudding was that when we had the games, it was really good. We could handle six players at a time on this board and in the two-and-a-half-hour game. And so we had three games per day. That's awesome. um, How big a table are you running, by the way? Well, this was a six-by-four table. Okay, yeah. Standard size. Basically, if if you've seen on the web, I've put the pictures of it all. We had buildings all around the edges and a couple of major buildings in the middle. Mm -hmm. We had... um, Three armies of um, American paratroopers and three Germans. And when you drop the paratroopers down, you all of a sudden had your paratroopers all over the board, Germans. And it wasn't like a normal one front, two front. It was just everyone everywhere. It was chaotic, but everyone got through the game fine, exciting at the last turn like all bolt action games are. Yep. And we had new players and players that wanted to play second and third time sometimes. In fact, over that weekend with that table and a second table we had, Mm-hmm. We had 64 players. Oh, that's awesome. Now, that's a, is that a two-day or a three-day weekend? That's over three days. That's amazing. And a total of eight – we had um, – so it was eight sessions. Mm-hmm. And um, we pretty much – that makes it about 14 games. That's amazing. So now so, were, were people signing up in advance for this? Or are they coming by or both? Well, mostly coming by or getting people for the next game perhaps. Got so it. I had I – was, I was there with – Three of my boys mm-hmm. and one of their friends. So there was five of us there, all with the our little name badges and all very professional. Oh, yeah. And anyone coming past, what some people noticed, that we weren't just focusing on the game itself. We were looking out and anyone breathing, that was fair game. Exactly. We drew them in. Ah, oh, so good. And um, we had one guy just wandering around and said, you want to play this, don't you? Play what? Bolt action. Oh, okay. And he came back for a second game afterwards because he thought it was so much fun. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I mean, as you know, I used to be workshop. Um, you know, I used to work for Games Workshop Corporate, and I used to spend a lot of time working at some of the big U.S. Games Days. And, you know, at those events, there would be sign-up games, but there would also be, you know, just tons of walk-by, find-a-game, play-a-game type things. And that's one thing that as much as I absolutely love CanCon, it seems to be that most of the events are sign up in advance. And it is so, it does my heart good to see, you know, someone reaching out and saying, hey, let's play a game, let's have fun, especially since it's a game that we love so much, Bolt Action. It's just awesome to see, man. You guys are awesome. Well, we found Bolt Action is the best introductory historical game we could find. We've been we try to get young ones in. And of yeah. the sixty four players, half of them were young, as in eighteen or below. Nice. A quarter were about eighteen to mid to late twenties. Mm-hmm. And the other quarter were older than that. Yep. Which is quite different demographic when you look over the gaming scene that's in the tournaments. Yeah. We were getting the young ones in. And we found that as a new game, bolt action is quick, it's fun, it's cinematic. Yeah. And everyone can by the end of turn one, they've learned how it works. And so we're having a great time. Definitely. Yeah, it is cinematic. It's also iconic. It's one of those things that, um, you know, people, even people who are not, you know, schooled in history per se, still know, oh, Germans, bad. Um, You know, allies, good. Uh, I know that stuff. I know those uniforms. Hey, I've seen that tank before. What is that? And, so you've seen um, a war movie, you've seen Bolt Action. Exactly. And it's able, yeah, as you say, it is, and that makes it cinematic. It, the fact that you can recognize it and, and the way it plays out is, yeah, it's just, it's, it really lends itself to it. We had one person, we had one 
bit in one of the games where the sole lieutenant from one of the American paratroopers wants to, in the last turn to get rid of these German inexperienced unit that was holding the objective, mm-hmm. charged out on his own. Nice. And he basically, with two dice, had um, gotten killed one of the Germans, mm-hmm. and the Germans had nine dice left. They rolled and had no kills. Oh. And so he was oh. able to basically get the whole inexperienced unit out of the way. Now, initially someone said, oh, that's not realistic, is it? Hang on. Have you read the Victoria Cross sort of exactly. citations? Yeah. Isn't it what these guys are going personally take out two, three, four machine gun posts? Because, oh, yeah, odds are against it, but it can happen. Exactly. Bot action happens. And that man just got a medal. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I do love a good bolt action happens story. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. And so, so we're planning now because we – We've been going out to um, try to get to most conventions as we can mm-hmm. to try to get people to play, and so we do a lot of practicing at the combat, um, the combat company's warehouse. Oh, nice, yeah. And so our next one, we're going to plan a because um, this will be coming out probably about time I'll be able to show pictures and so on. Yeah, we've got one of those nice one seventy second scale U boats. It's oh, about yeah. it's about thirty five forty centimeters. Oh, sorry, it's close to forty inches long. Forty it's inches huge. long. It's huge. It's, it's most of the board. And so that'll be in the middle of the board, and we'll wow. have a whole U-boat pen. And so it'll be an, a, board, a game fought over the, a U-boat pen. Oh, I definitely want to see pictures of that. Oh, you'll be seeing that in about a week or so once I've got it all done. Oh, I think we need to do a road trip up to uh, the combat company, Brad. Yeah, seriously, dude, you're driving. I'm coming. That's awesome. Oh, <laughs> so good. Oh, well, that's, that's cool. So hold on. What, what, forces are you, what forces are you using in that? That'll be um, – we'll have – German defenders, and I might get some Kriegsmarine because yeah. I can't help myself. Oh, yeah. And with some American um, or maybe British uh, commandos, I don't know. We'll, we'll experiment and try a few different things. Oh, but we figured with the U-boat and some gantries and stocks, should be fun. Oh, man, that sounds absolutely like a party that I need to get a part of. Um, oh, I don't know if I can make it, but oh. oh it's Because we, what we do is we'll practice at the combat company. Mm-hmm. And then at HawkCon, we'll have it there. That's oh. uh, Mother's Day weekend. That's right, Mother's Day weekend in Sydney. Mm. Oh, fantastic! So now you did mention your boys. Now you you have your sons that usually, I mean, your sons and friends who usually help you out at these events. Yeah, man, oh, they definitely they have that same you know go out there and get it attitude that you have, man. You have a really rad family. Um, how is it that, I mean, do they all play when they're not, you know, when you guys aren't doing the family thing or, I mean. Are we doing, we, we play some games at, at home and as we're getting into the trying things out and so on. But in any case, we look at the whole picture rather than just, just playing the game. It's yeah. the modeling, the, the, the hobby itself, the building the scenery and the um, doing things together. For me, it's a father-son thing. Absolutely. It's something we can do together. Because yeah. too often you see, you know, what are you going to do with you? I don't know. I don't want to. I'm not doing sports. So I'm not quite as fit as I was. And yeah. we try to work things together. This is a good thing to do because all of a sudden you sit down and say, "Oh, have we did this? Have we did this?" Yeah, it's good fun. It is good fun, man. And uh, it's just so cool to see, um, you know, you know, father son type stuff going on like that. Especially since you do have a larger family and that you know you do do that. Oh, it's cool. I just love it. Yeah. It, it was really nifty at the um, at CanCon and also at um, Moab as well, where we're getting lots of father-son teams following us around. We had about six father-son teams at Moab and about six or seven at CanCon, and awesome. some drove specially down from Sydney 
to Canberra, knowing we'd be there. Oh, that's cool. And it was an excuse for them to go for a trip, and they got there, and the dad was there with his boys and had a great game. And yeah. they season camp at Combat Company as well. Uh, I got to say, man, I, I wish as a kid – my dad took me to, uh, you know, something like CanCon. Uh, that would just, okay, back then there may not have been something like CanCon, but oh, that would have been awesome. I mean, yeah, we, we really didn't do anything like that. I think my dad did take me to a uh, university anime night, I mean, way back in the day before oh, anime wow. was a thing. And I think he was horrified at all of the people who, you know, grown up, you know, I guess we'd call them geeks. Um, <laughs> but, you know, hey, I'm one of those people. And I knew my people back then, and I still know my people now. So uh, One yeah. of us. One, one of us. us. <laughs> yeah. But I think my dad looked into this, like, you know, distorted mirror and saw a grown-up version of me that, you know, <laughs> and r- tried to recoil, but it was too late. Um, yeah. Oh, that's just awesome, man. Yeah. Cool. Now... I did want to ask, how do you come up with the ideas for these awesome demo games? You, I mean, clearly you have a bunch of different armies playing on a table. There's a lot of interaction that happens there. Um, and clearly you play test the, the heck out of it. How are you sort of coming up with these ideas? or What's the, what's the process well, there? Well, St. Miraglis one, we were sort of watching um, Longest Day. And nice. watching the the guy in the, the parachute guy was with the bells dinging and mm-hmm. with John Wayne being dragged in his um in his cart and that was all pretty exciting. I said, hey, what if we could do a game of that? You know? Yeah. And of course, if you did it as per reality, it'd be one sided both all the way. Yeah. But hang on, I remember when I was a kid when we first I started wargaming. Well, I remember the old bits of tissue on a ruler and you turn it over and then they all float down to the ground. Yep. And so we did the same thing, but now we've got lovely computers and color printers and things. We could have mm-hmm. proper colored different bits and pieces. Yeah. So how can we make this work? So we experimented and tried different things out. And so it was a modified St. Miraglis, but it was great fun. And the reason I was looking at this um, pen, we just saw a picture somewhere of, of a nice pen saying, that'd be a great way to war game over. I wonder if I can buy one of these U-boats somewhere. So we tracked it down and we found one. That's arriving Friday if we're lucky and we get to build it. That's and so we just see a movie scene or a picture somewhere and say, that'd be an interesting board. Something's a bit different. And as you said, we've got lots of buildings. Yeah, absolutely. And we've been uh, – I just can't help myself with these beautiful MDF buildings we've got out available yeah. now from all different companies. Oh, yeah. And so we said, just one more, just one more. <laughs> and we... Yeah, I know that feeling. That's why I have yeah. a wall of German tanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, luckily I've got um, minions to help paint the models that I buy. Well, that's true. Um, but yeah, we've and my wife and daughters help make the buildings, and now we're painting them to personalise them as well. And yeah. we've actually now started a bit of a YouTube channel of things we're doing, which has been going quite fun. Now, how can people find that? Because I knew that was there, and I wanted to make sure we plugged that. If you go to thedemogamers.blogspot.com, that's our website, and mm-hmm. on there you can link through to the, um, the YouTube channel as well, and and we post things on both because we try to make it so what we do we can share. Yeah. People can see how we do things and say, oh, that'd be cool. How'd you do that? Well, there it is. Tell everybody everything. Exactly. And you guys often make comments, uh, comic strips out of some of the pictures that you take. Um, what what software fun. do you use for that? That's just awesome, man. It's so much fun. It's just cheap software I got called Comic Life. Oh, yeah. And I have that on my one of my old laptops. It's cool. That's it's, right. Yeah. I used to teach kids. and my, my kids in my class used to use that. Yeah. It's great. It's great fun. Yeah, it, it is. Every time we do something, it makes a sound effect. 
But it's just you got the pictures there and then just put them together with some comments and it's good fun. And what yeah. we do is, well, when some character is something amazing, like that lieutenant that um, knocked off those German insurance squad, mm-hmm. he becomes a named character. So he's now called Lieutenant David after the guy that played him. Nice. And when we had a medic, um, a Russian medic, who was sitting there within six inches of this three-man HQ squad holding an objective, mm-hmm. and it was, that HQ squad was attacked by three or four other Finnish squads, every time one got shot, she rolled a six. Six times she rolled a six to keep that squad still there. Oh. So we called her Sonia. She's now called Sonia. Whenever she plays, that's nice. now Sonia the Medic. Yeah, but that's awesome. It just adds so much character to it. Um, I know it that um, uh, Ubergruber, Dave, uh, David on the Down Order podcast um, gets into the habit of occasionally naming guys in his army down to every single guy in his army. Um <laughs> And, hey, man, that's a level of commitment that I admire and know that I definitely wouldn't do. Uh, but that's cool. I mean, you know, oh, oh, my God, you killed Steve. Or, you know, going exactly. back to uh, South Park way back in the day, you killed Kenny. Um, <laughs> something like that, yeah. Well, Uber Gruber was, had the idea for us to have 600-point armies. Oh, it was did his he? sort of idea that size. And so we've, we took that and they've been refining it. And we now have got that for us is the perfect size for running demo games because you can have one, two, or three kitchen point armies on the same side. Oh, and we nice. play with each pair of players has a dice bag. So therefore the six players have three dice bags going at the same time. Now, how does that work? Um, is it, I mean, I, I get the feeling that it isn't as maybe technically strict as, say, a tournament. Well, basically, you've got um, in turn one, you've got the dice bags going for each different pair, mm-hmm. and you can shoot across against other players and other sides as well. It doesn't matter. Awesome. And then at end of turn one, you wait till all bags finished, and then you turn it over. Turn two, let's pull the bags out again and go again. And so it all sinks at the end of each turn. Fantastic. But you're able to fight across. And sometimes, of course, you pull a dice out, and they pull a dice out at the same time, and, and if we say, okay, roll dice, who goes first? Okay. But it makes it a little bit more chaotic. But it keeps the game with 1,800 points and, and six players still finishes in two and a half to three hours. That's amazing. Yeah, having that many units on a board and, yeah, I suppose with that many units on a board as well, you would also um, – I'm just envisioning that it would get really bloody really fast. And for new players, it would get really interesting. It does. Yeah, yeah we just look at the casualties. You know, It's tink, 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 boom. Exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. and suddenly you get – Everyone doing frontal assaults and oh, casualties everywhere, and everyone rushing at the last turn for that um, flag, and then it. It turn seven, no, ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome, Anthony. I know I've been throwing questions thick and fast. You have any uh, anything you'd like to uh, throw out there, brother? No, um, I notice now. I might be wrong here, but you haven't done uh, any desert war yet, have you, David? Not much. No, we've bought, we bought some LRG. Um, one of my sons bought that stuff, and we haven't done much of that yet. But we saw some really nice buildings someone's made from all these spare MDF bits and pieces on the um, Bolt Action Australia um, page. Looks really impressive. So we're getting tempted at it in a, later on this year, I think. Oh, fantastic! I love the sound of a good LRDG army. I yeah, it's one of those things oh, you so really armies, don't <laughs> see. Yeah, and yet we haven't really seen a ton of them down in the Australian scene too much. I know that um, Jason ran one a couple years ago, but he didn't actually run it at CanCon, so I've never actually seen a proper LRDG army down on a table. 
and I love mobility, so I would love to see a game like that on the table. Yeah, David, I, 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 if you get the chance, and I'm not, I don't want to step on your inspiration, but man, if you could get the Italian LRDG versus the proper LRDG on a table, I think that'd be amazing. <laughs> the experiment, we keep trying new things. It gives a bit of spice in it all. Yeah. And um, when we, if we ever get the uh, final Finland stuff, um, oh yeah, we'll have some more Finnish stuff too. Is that now you're using the Baker Company ones? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we got the got part of the first shipment, and the rest of it's in uh, March. Of theoretically going to come in. I don't know. Yeah, it, hopefully it'll come soon because um, uh, the right. stuff I've seen for, that you've done for that looks really good, and it's a great advertise for those miniatures. Now, David, um, we spend a lot of time talking about oh, I don't know, uh, competitive events. We talk a lot about tournaments and you know themed one day events where you know there are winners and losers and. I mean, not to say that you don't have winners and losers and that your events aren't, you know, tight, fought, and competitive, but you really sort of take it in from a different angle. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we've, we've found that um, for our guys especially, even with with my boys and me, we aren't actually, we're not actually playing the game technically. We're just showing them how to play, but we get so involved in the game, yeah. we're getting just as much out of it. We just get exhausted as everyone else does at the end with the excitement and, and um, how it all ends up. That we've um, we've enjoyed this style of gaming a lot because we we might play ourselves similar type of ways. But when you get new players, they do things you don't expect. Yeah. You might think that's dumb, but it's not. One lad, um, about a 10, 12 year old at the most, he mm-hmm. decided on, on the board we had with that culvert. He sent a squad up the culvert. Everyone looked and said, oh, "What a waste of troops that is! What are you doing that for?" Well, turn four, he went up the steps and captured the objective. And everyone goes, "What?" That's awesome. He's looking at a different angle on how things work. And we're finding that type of gaming for us is really fun, where we're playing, but we're also showing others how to do, getting more opponents, meeting new people, making new friends, and it's really good for us. And when people do get into it, they can then move across and play some of the competitive stuff. And and by the way, the competitive games I've seen in the Bolt Action Tournaments, they're not competitive as in me versus you. Yeah, exactly. Everyone seems to enjoy themselves regardless. Yeah. It's an amazing bolt action community where that sure, I might be top of the list and won the tournament, but I've had as much fun as a guy that didn't. Yeah. It's amazing watching the bolt action tournaments in action. It is. And going to places like CanCon and looking at other game systems running alongside, literally alongside bolt action, I have to say, man, I walked by the uh, the fantasy event, and the fantasy event was amazing. And, and by all accounts, it was run well, and it was something like 120 players. But wow. man, it was, I mean, I walked by, and I, I had a lot of friends playing in that event. And every single one of them in every single game, I don't think I saw one person smile <laughs> over the course of every time I walked by. And that was a lot. Um, Anthony, you walked by in through those halls and it just seemed like, you know, it was very, very serious. We're playing games here. And it was just like, you know what? I want to have fun. I want to, you know, yell at my dice when I roll a foobar and like, you know, generally carry on and just, you know, have fun, like be a kid. I mean, I don't push toy soldiers around a table to be a grown up. Yeah. I've seen that the tournaments and in our games where that important dice roll, everyone's watching. Which yeah. is the nature of the um, the dice auto dice mechanism we use anyway. But you say no, oh that plans out the window, and everyone goes, oh phew. Now your turn fails, and your your plan fails, and that constant plan reshuffle 
Wrestling and so on is exciting. It doesn't matter whether it's a tournament or a play game. They're all great. Agreed. I think it. the big thing too, by making it such a fun event and that then those people are going to go home and then they get their friends to start playing. So exactly. you might've reached uh, 64 people at CanCon, but in the long run, you end up reaching out with bold action to a lot more people than just those 64. That's right. And it's good fun. And we that, see them event after event now. Exactly. They see you and your family just having so much fun playing it that, yeah, they go out, they get their friends, their family in it, and it really helps to grow the game. Agreed. It's good. And, and I don't mind. It's For us, I know there's this fabled sergeant program in other countries, but there isn't one in Australia. No. But I don't care anyway. Exactly. We're calling our guys sergeants. They're doing their job. Mm-hmm. And we're about to give them all a different uniform as well. We're designing a special vest, which has all the appropriate pockets, one to put a little laser into it, one for tape awesome. measure and name badge, and so we'll look quite swish next time you see us at a convention. Oh, fantastic, man. Yeah, you'll have to put pictures of the vest up. That's cool. Oh, you'll it. see that. Nice. And I do have to say, um, the Demo Gamers Bolt Action um, Index has been invaluable, uh, both as a player and as a TO of late. I keep flipping through the bolt action rulebook to find you know a specific rule, and having that index that you guys have on your website invaluable. I printed it off ages ago, and it's just tucked into my rulebook. Uh, it's, it's just such down- a gr- yeah. Sorry, it's been downloaded three thousand times. Wow! <laughs> Clearly, some people are using it. I'm surprised that that few times. I thought everyone playing would have had it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's, it's every time you look for a rule, it's just. Trying to flip through the book at random just didn't didn't do it for me. Yeah. Nah. Agreed. Agreed. It's great <laughs> stuff, man. Yeah, well, we've been finding a lot of the stuff I've put up there, like the periscope plans, mm-hmm. the um the, the Baltic one and the scenario book we put up there for the St. Mary Glues. A lot of these things get downloaded quite a few times and people looking at the how to make the roads and how to make the um hedges, all those mm-hmm. type of things people are downloading a lot. That's awesome, man. I think I'll definitely be uh, downloading anything you put up about this U-boat. Yeah, exactly. Ditto. It's going to be cool. Yeah, yeah man. Yeah, we'll find a bit of the boys this weekend. should be fun. Definitely. Well, Anthony, you have a bunch of Kriegsmarines, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to Ooh. seeing what you do with that. Uh, I don't have too many yet, but I think I might get a lot more soon. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> My man. I think you spark something, I think, here. Oh, <laughs> Fantastic. All right, David. Well, uh, thank you again for coming on, man. Um, is there any event in particular? I know you're going to be at the Combat Company. Do you have dates on that yet, or is that uh, – That would be Mar- 21st of March. We're going Fantastic. to be at the Combat Company on the Saturday. Mm-hmm. And, and that's preparing Oops. for yep. May at the HawkCon. Fantastic. Guys, uh, if you haven't had the chance and you're anywhere nearby – Please uh, go check out Demo Gamers, one of their events. Um, it's it's so good. And if you're looking for some great terrain or just you know a great website that has some great bolt action resources, please check out the blog. David, please give us that blog again. I know it's it's a it's a bookmark it's, on my computer, so I don't actually know the website. TheDemoGamers.blogspot.com. There you go. Awesome. And yeah, again, it's on my favorites bar, so I know I'm always there. Guys, you should check it out. All right. Thank you very much, David. We uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Please give our best to your family, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thank you, Brad. See you later, Anthony.
See you later. Being hobbyists, as well as wargamers, we usually spend a lot of time and effort painting up our miniatures for the tabletop. That's why quality carry cases and bags that protect those models are worth their weight in gold. Operating out of Australia, Laser Touch has a great range of bags and foam trays for World War II miniatures, and even do custom trays for those really unique models. They also have a line of pin markers and objective markers designed especially for bolt action and cover a wide selection of nations and units. Check out their offerings at lasertouch.com.au and grab yourself a set of Ghost Army markers now. And we are back. I am back, of course, with the one and only Rocketman Anthony, and we have an amazing special guest. Um, akin to some of the greats of the gaming world, at least uh, of our generation, Anthony and I were talking about it earlier, one of the men responsible for, you know... Warhammer 40,000 of the, you know, Rogue Trader and Second Edition era who, you know, went through and has done so many things for the gaming world, including writing the Russian book and most recently the Osprint book. Um, in the past, he was called the Overfiend. Um, these days, I think he's just Andy, but Andy Chambers, welcome to the Ghost Army podcast. Hi there, guys. Very great pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great having you, man. Let's go. So, man, I have so many questions, and I'm not sure where to start, so I'm going to immediately pass the ball. Anthony, go for it. Oh, well, at first I just want to say uh, thank you for all your hard work on Warhammer 40K. That's what got me into wargaming back 20 years ago when I was an 11-year-old child. So. <laughs> You're depressing me. Uh, it would, no, what's going to be more depressing is if I told you when I started playing, and I'm a lot older than Anthony. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So you've got a quite a resume in the background there. All these well, great games you've worked on. Straight off the back, is it, it's it's never been hard work. Oh. <laughs> well, okay, hard work, but generally it's not been hard work because I, I'm a very lucky guy. I, I get to do something I enjoy, uh, and other people enjoy it too. So, I just count my blessings. To be honest, that I get to carry on doing it. Awesome. Yeah, man. Oh, I still remember your picture in the back of the Rogue Trader book. Every, you know, so many different people were drawn in a cartoon, like Judge Dredd esque picture. And as a kid, and yeah, this is this does mark me as the fanboy that I am. It was like, oh, that's Andy Chambers. That's awesome. Um, so yeah. Anyway, moving on. Um, oh, Andy. So many things I want to talk about with the Ostfront and the Russians book. Um, now, you, t you spoke on Bolt Action Radio, one of the other podcasts on the network, um, about how you enjoyed creating the Russian book because you were, a pas you were passionate about you know, that sort of front of the war as a kid. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, Anthony here, he, he got switched on to 40K when he was 11. And, you know, and that for him has, has been a big part of his gaming life, I'm sure. For me, when, when I was kind of like even younger than that, I got into the World War II stuff because yeah. that's what little boys did back then. You know, and through that, getting into the, the whole Eastern Front kick and understanding that while there was this huge battle that went on in Europe and so on, that there was a huger battle, a longer battle that went on in the East has, has always really fascinated me. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I've only, I mean, I, until the Russian book came out, I had very little. I don't know, exposure to the Russian theater, um, anything having to do with Russia and the war. I mean, I knew it existed. I, I, I knew what tanks were, you know, the, the T-28 and the, 
the T thirty four and all of these things. But um, you know, that's a very American centric view. Oh, we we won the war, blah blah blah. Um, where there, but there's so many iconic battles as part of that part of the war. Was there any part of that conflict that really interested you as a kid, or sort of overall? Uh, I, I think everyone tends to go through the same sort of journey when, when, you, when you start getting into a particular period of history and studying it harder. And the first thing that you'll come across is the big banner name battles, you know, on the Eastern Front. That Stalingrad oh, is yeah. the one that always comes out. Kursk is the one that always comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, because they were very defined and because they had very def- decisive results that kind of changed the, the course of the war. So... I think that, that was the first things I ran across. But then, you know, you dig a bit deeper and you find out about the battle for Moscow and the fact that, you know, the Soviet Union nearly went down in the first six months it was invaded. Yeah. And you're like, oh, oh, that's interesting. And then you find out about the battle of Leningrad, where a city was dece- you know, besieged for 900 days, starved, surrounded, uh, and still held out through all that time, through winter so harsh that, well, I suppose East Coastal Americans can kind of imagine them right now. <laughs> These but, days, yeah. We thought, imagine them in, in Europe, and still they hung on. And then you read on a bit further, and you find out about this guy called Zhukov, who was actually fundamentally in all of those battles, and was the guy who, you know, led the Red Army to victory in very real terms. And it all starts to fall into place a little bit more. You know what I mean? And it starts to build its own narrative in a fascinating way. And I think that's what makes history so interesting to dig into, because there's always more Absolutely. layers upon layers. Absolutely, man. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, So as now that sort of ties in, and one of the questions that was asked by um, one of the other guys on the podcast was, clearly you're passionate about, you know, the Eastern Front, about Russia uh, in World War II. Do you play Russians when you play bolt action? Uh, Yes. Yes, well, actually, the, the last game I had was, was with my friend Bill Bird, who also plays Russians, so we rolled off to have the dishonor of not playing the Russians, and I had to play Dirty Germans oh, no. on that <laughs> game. And it, what's worse is I won as well, so in, mutual dissatisfaction on that front. Oh, the shame. <laughs> but no, my, 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 my preferred army is, is the Soviets, well, in one form or another, and I play them in multiple scales as well. I've got a, a Blitzkrieg Commander, one two hundred scale. Oh, wow. Russian army that's been seeing an awful lot of uh, action over the last year or so as well. Nice, very nice. And, uh, I've got a one three hundredth one around somewhere as well, and a fifteen mil one. So yeah, yeah, you, you could say I play. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, back in the day, I always knew you were the guy who played orcs, um, and then yeah, and now you <laughs> it all comes together, doesn't it? Like <laughs> some kind of scheme. Exactly. The the horde, the faceless horde, uh, yeah, oh, right, coming out of the waste. Rest of it, yeah, they're, they're all just space Russians, really. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I I did look back at uh, that really thin second edition orc codex um, right before you know, a couple of weeks ago, knowing that you were going to be on, and it was like, oh my god, so much of this is Russians. Um, yeah, it really did change everything. Yeah, the way I looked at that. <laughs> yeah, down to you know anti tank squads and you know all these other things. It's like, oh my god, that wow, that that's something. So yeah, it was awesome. Cool. Uh, well, do you have any favorite units? I mean, there's one of the things that has been said so many times about the Russian book is how versatile it is. 
Like you can make almost any kind of army, unlike a lot of bolt action armies where there's a distinct character. Um, sure, the Russian book has a character, but one of its characters characteristics is that it's so versatile. Now, do you want to talk? Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I, pff, a favorite unit. I think my favorite of all units has to be the humble T-34, actually, because a better all-round tank you could not wish for, really. But that that's a bit of a a loose answer. I don't know, basic infantry, to be honest, inexperienced yeah. rifle squads. Because if if you want a, a unit that's characteristic of, of the Red Army, then inexperienced rifle squads is really it. Yeah. Uh, more than anything else. But as you say, the, the reason it's it's such a a diverse list is because it actually covers a, a very changing uh, Red Army from what you've got in 1941. Mm-hmm. There's no resemblance at all to what you have in 1945, really. Exactly. So uh, you, you can actually pick any point through that progression and, and, and see a fairly different army in, in, in action. Mainly to do with when you get down to that gritty level at the infantry level, they, they really change their tactics massively over the course of, you know, out of necessity and also out of learning the hard way uh, between 41 and 45. So, you know, you started with these masses of inexperienced infantry being mown down by machine guns, and by the end of it, it it's actually fairly elite guys with an awful lot of tanks yeah. and not very many infantry. You know, loads of guns, loads of tanks, uh, but not any actual guys, and the whole way that they approach things started to be very different. You know, the mass infantry attacks of the past were a rarity. They still pulled them on occasion. Yeah. I mean, you know, Battle for Berlin was a bloodbath because of it, but... Yeah, exactly. At that point. Well, that was, uh, you know, getting, uh, what is it, the tiger in the corner, and then, you know, going after it. There was no way anyone was going to go into Berlin and not get bloodied somehow, so... Yeah. And I mean, Soviets did. And I mean, there's so many different rules that reflect so many different things that the Soviets did do, like massed artillery batteries and the fact that there are so many artillery pieces that they use throughout the war. Um, and now we get even more with the Ostfront book because we're seeing things like the heavy katushas, which I think are awesome. So cool. <laughs> Yeah, pushing at the boundaries of what you should really be having in a platoon-level skirmish game, I suspect. Yeah. But uh, an interesting thing to have in there, and you know, at the end of the day, because of the way the bolt action works, um, they're a bit meaner than a normal Katusha, but not that much meaner, and they yeah. kind of come with their own downsides. So, yeah, automatically I, I pinning yourself is not a good thing. <laughs> it's just representing the reload times, you know. No, absolutely. I think it's sensational. I kind of want to build an army around one. Um, just not because I think it's going to be effective, but how iconic would that be? Like we're defending the Katusha position. Um, <laughs> although at that point in the war, I don't know how much of that they actually did. Um, there may have been, what, you know, defending the Katusha position. Yeah. Um, Germans are counterattacking all the time, right up to 45, uh, on a local level. You uh, know, they didn't make strategic gains, but right. yeah, all, all the fricking time. So don't worry yourself too much about that because you've got to remember that the German ethos revolved more around using attacks than defenses. That's true. So whenever they could, they would, they would use counterattacks to try and upset their opponents and cut them off and take out heavy weapons and things like that. That's right. So, yeah, never say never when it comes to World War II, really. 
That's true. We were actually earlier uh, in another episode. I guess it was on Bolt Action Radio. Anthony was on and was saying that prove that there weren't penguins fighting in uh, Monte Cassino. So, I mean, anything's possible. It's World War II. <laughs> That's not really what I mean. I know. I'm just, I, I am kidding about that. Yeah. I was a bit more tongue-in-cheek at the time about it as well. <laughs> exactly. There, it's true, but I don't think there were any penguins. Hey, there might have been penguins in Monte Casino. They may have had a zoo. No, uh, no, it would have been leveled. But, Anthony, you are an experienced Russian general, far more than I. I've played some games with my Russians, but not nearly as many as yours. Uh, do you have any questions for Anthony? About, I'm sorry, Anthony. Yeah, I'm talking to Anthony. Uh, to Andy yes. about uh, his Russians? Um, I just want to hit on, I really love the scout units. I actually mm-hmm. use them in most of my armies, and I'm doing another army now with scouts and um, M3 scout cars and stuff like that. I actually really like them being added into the Russian book as something completely different no other army can do. Yeah, well, a- again, you know, late war, there, there was such a strong feature um, of, of the Russian armies that they were using these, these quite deep infiltrating scout units to go and find um, holes in the line and exploit them and stuff like that. It just seemed wrong not to have them, you know, because it was a big deal. Everything I read in the Russian uh, histories is how important the, the scout units are. Yeah, so read a, uh, I was just going to say, read a lot of reports about the Germans saying, yes, like, they'd wake up in the morning and the Russians have crept up again, yeah. and stuff like that, every night constantly probing. And so, yeah, that's probably my favorite unit from the Russian book. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. A choice, yeah. Now, we did talk about it a little bit off air, and we did sort of joke about it, but I think your answer was so good that we can't not really talk about it. Um, Anthony and Brian are kind of fanatics for a certain army that may have had a Kickstarter in the last year or two that may have revolved around, oh, I don't know, Hungarians. Um, could could you talk really quick about the process of why certain things made it into the book? Because as you said off air, the name's a little misleading. Um, well, the the answer from book, yeah, it, it covers the eastern front, so it, it has to cover an awful lot of stuff. But it also you know ranged out to Kalkin Gol over fighting the Japanese and mm-hmm. the Finnish War as well, the Winter War, exactly nineteen forty before we even got to the eastern front. So, honestly, it's, it, it was more an issue of space and time uh, than anything else that we didn't put Hungarians in. In retrospect, now, I wish we had put Hungarians in. It would have been cool. And going forward, as I was mentioning to you earlier, just mm-hmm. not so long ago, I finished off Empires in Flames, which is a Pacific War book, and that's got a full Chinese army list in it. Ooh. So it would have been good to have done a Hungarian list. Yeah. I think it was from. But 2020 hindsight, sadly. Well, the good news yeah, is um, there's there's still <laughs> there's still time, and all you know, the, World War II is not. I mean, there's so much more to cover in World War II. Uh, you know, at one point we were worried that once the armies of books ended, you know, sort of <clears throat> bolt action would end. Um, and as we all thought it was a sensational game, we were all getting kind of worried about it. But uh, <laughs> once these these campaign books started coming out, I mean, and we'd done a, a little extra research on the side for sort of theming our own armies. I mean, there's just so much left to do. And just to go back to what you were just saying, I mean, Osprey's 112 pages. Um, for, a, for a bolt action book, that's huge. And it's not like it's empty. It's chalker block with units, with missions, with history. Um, so I, 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 I feel like it barely scratches the surface. You know what yeah. I mean? 
Oh, exactly. <laughs> but I, you, I mean, you literally cover what? 1939 is what you said to 1945. Yes. I mean, on yes. how many different sections of the war? Russia's huge, and you're covering far east. Um, you know, as far as Russia goes, far west for Russia. But I mean, it's it's amazing. There's so much in there. It's the problem with the yeah, east I've... front. It's, yeah. it's, it's just huge, isn't it? I think, uh, you know, 1,200-mile front with millions of people fighting on it. What I would have asked for Alessio and uh, Rick and John to th- think about in the future is maybe doing specific battle books about a battle. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, it, it's great to cover a great swathe. And what I've done is, is I've, I've imagined that these campaign books, to a large extent, are for people that haven't necessarily been into World War II since they were eight years old. Yeah. Um, and to, to act as like a primer to sort of like talk people through, from a wargaming sense, um, a particular you know, front, uh, in the case of the Pacific War or the Eastern Front. But I think in the future it would be great to actually do you know, Arnhem or Stalingrad or Kharkov or Leningrad or any one of a number of like smaller battles in real depth, in real detail, as much as we can find anyway, uh, and dig into them even, you know, drill even deeper. Because that's the great thing about World War Two, you can always drill a lot deeper, you know, right down to finding first-hand accounts of people who were there. So uh, exactly. I think that would be a worthy pursuit for the future. Definitely. That would be, that would be really exciting. I would love to get a Stalingrad book, um, and that's just for me personally. Um, well, let's let's move on then, and let's actually get to Ostfront. Um, can I just quickly say one of my favorite parts of this book is sort of page ninety nine on, and it is in t- an entire section of new rules um, to to mix up with missions, um, right? Because yep. you mentioned them in the Russian book, and there wasn't a reason to take skis for my Finn army. Until uh-huh. now, um, and you know you have you know dug in properly dug in positions. We have I mean night fighting rules, minefields. Some of this stuff had been in PDFs that Warlord had been throwing around, but actually having you know a very nice laid out section, um, especially like the city fight section. Um, you just sort of look at it and go, yeah, that's awesome. I can just tag that into my as part of my wargaming. Well, uh, you know, uh, on on top of the, the sort of historical side and, you know, discussing maybe units that um, were discussed in the appropriate army books, there was a great desire on the part of Warlord to, to expand out the scenario special rules. Um, and they're, they're kind of culled from a number of different places. I mean, the minefield rules, they're in background Europe for the first time. Mm-hmm. The night fight rules have been kicking around in a PDF form for quite a while because Rick did those. Right. Uh, I did the city fight stuff. We did the extra weather and conditions stuff as well, specifically for Ostfront, to help with theming it. And as you say, it actually makes an interesting section of special scenario rules to play around with. And a lot of them actually do help to throw yeah, stuff like aerosands sands and ski troops a bit more into context when you've actually got some proper rules for snow and you know, harsh weather conditions. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. You know, a, a proper rules supplement, uh, as well as being a history book, was, was part of the brief for it. Nice. Nice. Now, would you like to talk us through sort of how the book came to being or um, maybe, you know, cheekily we could ask about perhaps another book that may be coming out shortly um, if uh, you can't remember about, you know, the Ostfront book? 
<laughs> well, they they all um, they they both I should say follow a similar pattern. Um, both Ostfront and Empires in Flames, which is pretty much Paul Sawyer, I suspect it is more than anybody else. But Warlord, we'll, we'll give them a generic title of Warlord, mm-hmm. um, produces a we would like to see in this book list, uh, which is far, far too long and far, far too detailed to possibly manage to make it inside the 112 pages we have to play with. Yeah. So, but nonetheless, there's a big sort of like, could we have all these things, uh, you know, units, obscure vehicles, what have you. Um, and then and, and from that, we sort of work up a, a basic architecture, like a, like a page plan mm-hmm. of breaking it down to sections. Different sections for different periods of time or different battles that occurred. So uh, the Fall of Singapore, for example, in the Empires and Flames book is a separate section because it was fundamental enough. Exactly. Um, and from that, taking that list, plus, oh yeah, we want some scenario special rules, I sit down and I set about putting together a book, and you work through it section by section, you write a history, um, look at any special units that need to be added in on there, look at any other bits and pieces you want to add, but the primary thing is to come up with at least a couple and I generally only manage a couple, but I would prefer to do more scenarios that sort of fit into that particular point in time or area of the theatre and help to illustrate the sort of thing you're talking about. So for uh, the Ostfront book, for example, the hedgehog scenario that's in there to represent uh, the German defeat in front of Moscow and mm-hmm. the subsequent sort of like counterattack by the Soviets where they managed to kind of flood through the German positions but actually ended up with these little strongholds surrounded German villages and uh, kind of lacked the strength to really to just destroy them. So yeah. you ended up with this sort of skirmishing that went over on over a period of months in the snow with the Russians on the outside and the Germans on the inside sort of like trying to stave off uh, occasional attacks. And so mm-hmm. I thought, that's a really important sort of period of the history, so let's have a scenario based around that idea. Exactly. Which plays out great, of course, as a platoon-level skirmish game as well. Yeah, it would. I mean, the, just probing actions back and forth. I mean, that literally would yeah. be a platoon-level action, as you say. Yeah. Cool. Now... So that's... Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was, I was just going to say, you just reminded me that the other one for the start of the Barbarossa campaign is seizing bridges, just as another example of the kind of actions that took place with, you know, a small number of guys doing something important. Yeah, so absolutely. there's a, a bridgehead's mission as well. Now, so actually, kind of sorry, go ahead. I'm actually really looking forward to playing the blockbusting scenario too from the Stalingrad section. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that looks really interesting how both people just start in their halves. You can be as close as you can get. And then, yeah, <laughs> there's a... That pre yeah, as close as you think on everyone. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just hug the enemy tight. That's right. And hope that you don't get bombed. Um, now, there are 13 missions in this book. Um, and man, I, I, I know that Anthony and I were talking about it before you came on about <laughs> which ones we wanted to play first. Do you have, I, I suppose you've talked about a few, but do you have any favorites in the book that maybe don't measure or I don't know, just that you like to play or you think would be good for people. A lot of the people who listen to this podcast um, do play, not 
I wouldn't say competitively, but they do tend to play by sort of rules as written or in tournament environments where, you know, it's very fair. Um, some of the missions in some of the books, for example, don't play out in that way. They're very historical. They're a lot of fun to play. But is there any sort yeah. of balance missions that for both sides? Does that make sense? Am I... Yeah, no, I understand where you're coming from. Um, a lot of the missions do tend to be uh, narrative as exactly. in as in they are telling a story about you know seizing bridgehead or, or holding the hedgehogs so that kind of face to face balance is is often better served by the ones out of the bolt action main book and yeah. i'd be guessing if there was one to try competitively it might be one of the cursed ones mm. uh the first cursed one i can't remember what it's called now i'm on it you, yep can you take a look yep i'm doing it now Fantastic. Well, while I'm looking that up, um, what were some of the units? I mean, because clearly in this book you had the opportunity to add units you missed or you felt like you missed in the Russian book. How you could have missed anything in the Russian book because it has everything. It was a bloody hunt, I can tell you, to find more things to put in. Yeah. (laughs) It was a tough one uh, because, as you pointed out earlier on, the, the, the armies of the Soviet Union book is pretty exhaustive, actually. Plus the, you know, the Russians themselves were, were really rigorous about not producing things that, you know, didn't fit into the general mass. So they they cut almost all production of the, the extraneous armored cars and things like that down to the bare minimum. So yeah. it was a bit of a challenge at times, and a lot of the stuff that ended up going in there is, you know, pre-war really uh, armored car and tankette types and things like that. Um, the heavy Katusha, I'd say that was why that was a bit of a fight. It was like, oh, PM30s, they're different enough that they would actually qualify. Yeah, I'll put them in. Yeah, exactly. But generally, yeah, for, for the Russians in particular, it was kind of a bit of a struggle to, to find additional units because nearly all of them are covered in arms of the Soviet Union. Uh, the Germans, however, of course, are massively profligate and use captured things, rebuild, mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. So they, they weren't too tough to find extra things for at all. Yeah, I was going to say, they wouldn't be at all. They had so many. I'm Every day, I'm finding something new. Um, just as a fun thing for the side, if you get really bored and you get stuck like in an airport and you have an internet connection, um, just, and this is a little fun game for those of you at home, type into Google SD, what is it, SDZK, oh, I can never get the acronym right. KFZ. That, that one. KFZ, yeah. Um, <laughs> Just type that in with a number um, and start at a low number and add one to it and do Google search images. Um, I got stuck waiting at a doctor's office a little while ago and it was hours of entertainment because I was there forever and it was just, oh my God, I had no idea that vehicle existed or, oh, that's really interesting. What's that? Or there are so many different variants of so many different vehicles. Um, yeah, the Germans had everything. But anyway, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, Packfront is the mission, Scenario 9. Um, there we go, Packfront, yes, of course. But what I really like is on the page before that, you actually sort of, you talk about how you can use the general scenarios in conjunction with, you know, some of the new scenarios to sort of set up, you know, uh, a, a narrative, I don't know if a campaign, but, you know, linked games. Yeah, yeah, or, or, or just look at the. I mean, again, again, this is part of the point of having the scenario special rules is so that you can take those core scenarios that are in the bolt action rule book 
maybe apply some scenario special rules onto the theme them a little bit more towards what you're doing. But yeah. in, in general, they're, they're, they can serve just fine because they are covering broad actions of envelopments and breakthroughs and things like that. Um, which is, again, why the the scenarios in the Ostrom book tend to be quite narrative because the basic stuff of line up and fight or line up and fight over an objective or line up and fight and destroy an objective or what have you is covered in the main bolt action rule book. Yeah. So it is more actively making things that uh, maybe do have a bit more chance involved in them. Right. Um, one of my actual favorites is uh, the Stalingrad scenario where the Germans are trying to rush to the, the docks and stop Russian reinforcements coming ashore. And you get a random dice roll each turn about what actually shows up, if anything, having come through the Luftwaffe on the Volga sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and it might be some inexperienced infantry, you know, it might be a gun, I say it might be nothing at all. Yeah. And then in the, the last scenario in the book, uh, the Battle for Berlin has the same thing with uh, the Germans just having random reinforcements showing up or nothing at all. Yeah. And clearly you'd never play that in a competitive environment because no. it's a dice roller's chance about whether you've got additional panther tanks against you or nothing. But exactly. <laughs> in terms of a narrative, it can be a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. And that sounds like a lot. I mean, and one thing that um, we did talk about in a prior episode is you don't always have to play bolt action like it's a tournament environment. In fact, it's probably a good thing to not do that every now and again. Um, I, I know that a lot of the guys in the LRDG podcast and um, Brian from this podcast got together recently to play a great big Italian game. And they just threw down all the desert stuff they could. They were relatively point-based. In fact, they were pretty point-synced. But they really went out of their way just to sort of throw the kitchen sink out there. And they had a blast. And it was just, you know, threw a bunch of objectives down on the table, put out a couple special rules, and just played and had a, and just had a party. So, um, yeah, if you want to actually see a write-up of that, guys, there will be a... Um, a bunch of pictures, and I think they're doing a full article for the boltaction.net website. So that should be up hopefully by the time this episode lands. Um, just really quick, and I, we can't go an entire episode. One of our usual guys on this podcast, Patch, um, is a gigantic Francophile. And he isn't here this uh, today because of he's got some things going on in his personal life. All good. He just couldn't make this episode. Uh, but I did want to thank you on his behalf for the um, SS Grenadier Charlemagne guys, because while they're not technically French army, they are French. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that counts anyway, even if they are SS. So. Well, he's, uh, you, he's you painted should, you up. You should thank yeah. Paul Sawyer for that. He was the one who was particularly insistent on that going in. Oh, those are great uh, models, like say, too. Yeah. You know, Spanish Blue Division didn't make it in. But uh, the Charlemagne guys did. Nice. So, well, uh, Andy, we are getting to be at that point where we do need to take a quick break. So, if are you uh, free to hang out for another little bit? Uh, yep, I am good. All right, cool. Well, we will uh, be right back with Andy Chambers. Wargame Soldiers and Strategy Magazine is the historical gamer source for product reviews, painting tips, and tutorials covering every genre from ancients all the way to the modern age. Each issue has incredible pictures and dioramas as well as articles written by the industry's most recognized names. Click on the WSS banner at the top of our site and use the coupon code WWPD to save 15% on your subscription today. WSS, it's time to play with history. And we're back, still with Andy Chambers here. 
So, Andy, was it hard writing the Winter War section, being such a fan of the Soviets? Well, you don't get to be a fan of the Soviets without realising that they made terrible, terrible, terrible missteps along the way. Um, and, you know, didn't necessarily fight for the most moral of causes either. So, yes, yes. It, as you know from my time working in uh, the sci-fi and fantasy field, I, I do tend to do the the armies of darkness to a large extent. And, and really, the, the Red Army, God bless them for saving us all, when they invaded Finland, they were acting as an army of darkness. So yeah. it makes a great narrative, the, the plucky Finns holding out against the, the countless hordes of... Uh, of Russians, and even for a Soviet fan like myself, there, there, there's ultimately a, a happy story that comes out of the terrible events of the, the Winter War, yeah. which is that for all that the Red Army revealed itself to be a completely shambolic mess, they learned a lot. They actually learned a lot from the Winter War and had started applying it by the time that Germany invaded them um, a year later, a year and a half later. Exactly. And they so were still using... Thing. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, that's one of the big things with the Soviets, isn't it? That whole narrative of the whole war for them, just how much they learnt by the end of it. Such a completely yeah. different army. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's a huge evolutionary process for them. I mean, a, a great example with the Winter War is the fact that, you know, the KV-1, such a great terror for the Germans when they, they actually showed up 18 months later, there weren't any until the start of the Winter War, and they built two, I think it was, as um, prototypes to test out. And and only because the Kirov you know, Design Bureau begged Stalin to be allowed to try, try out some heavy tanks with only one turret on them instead of the multi-turret monstrosities. Yeah. And it worked out so well, it went st- straight into full production. Um, so, <laughs> there was, and- I mean, the KV-2 came out as well, which was dreadful, but... Yeah. Sorry, you were going to say... And things like no ski troops for the winter war. I know, it's unbelievable, isn't it? No snow camouflage, no ski, no ski troops. All these things that we completely associate with the Red Army in winter didn't yeah. exist exactly. at the time of the winter war. It was all learned off the Finns, spanking them senseless. So, um, yeah. Yeah, that was, that's quite the revelation for you. I mean, even for me, it was quite the revelation that, you know, literally, the, the Red Army was pretty much clueless about having specialised, you know, winter troops and so on. Um, yeah. They just trudge over people with mass, as per usual. But, but, in, in many ways, but that really so. does say a lot about sort of their philosophy of warfare, that though they got stomped so badly, that they actually learned so quickly from that, and it completely changed tactics, it changed technology, it changed, you know, just general issue weapons and hardware for just down to the faceless masses. Yeah. 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 And, and, and acted it really, really quite quickly as well. Sorry. I was also going to say like anti-tank rifles, submachine guns. Again, you know, the, the red army had all of these things, but not, not in the, the numbers that they, they started to use them in later based in part on their experiences in the winter war. So yeah, it is quite fascinating. Um, a lot of people like to deride the Red Army as being you know, just this dumb, blunt instrument. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the time, yeah, it was. But, <laughs> but a dumb, always, blunt yeah. instrument actually 
eventually managed to prevail against an army that defeated the entirety of Europe, you know, in a matter of months. So, yep. they, they obviously were doing something right. Exactly. Self, self-sharpening. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, I got a, uh, I ha- one of the guys on the podcast um, is painting me an NKVD early war army. Um, mm-hmm. We made a deal, and I, yeah, I'm a slow painter, so he's helping me out there. I have a Soviet scout army that he also painted, and I'm painting up a um, Stalingrad, or maybe uh, not Stalingrad, Kursk um, um, naval army, and <laughs> and so and but all three of those armies are so completely different, um, and I, again, that just speaks. So, to how versatile the the Soviet army was in World War Two, and just to be you know a bootlicking fanboy for a second, how well the book represents that, and I really think that um, the Soviet book is one where theater selectors more than anything else, at least for me, because I didn't have that knowledge, was really useful. So if you know when looking at that, looking at the Soviet book, really going through the different battles and getting that, which is why when you start talking about having a battle book, that would just be sensational to get even more of that. Context, yeah. I, I mean, um, it, it touches on it a little bit with Kalkin goal, uh, at the start of the Ostfront book. I mean, again, it was a big battle. I mean, quite huge by Western standards, particularly for the time, mm-hmm. but it is, it's actually a, a more limited engagement where you can dig right down and, talk about what was actually in the uh, Japanese armoured detachment that was there, mm-hmm. for example. You know, literally list off tank by tank because it's a matter of record. They had 89 tanks and here's what they were. And, and that kind of thing I think would be really great to be able to dig into on uh, more specific battles and engagements, you know, day three of Monte Cassino and stuff like that would be a good thing to get into. Absolutely. Uh, although it can be very frustrating at times because you think all this information is out there and sometimes it's just not. Yeah. You know, there is nothing to go on. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, was there, is there anything else you wanted to really cover with the Ostfront book? Because um, I know we've talked about it a fair bit, but, man, there's so much good stuff in there. Um, hmm. I, I just want to, you know, uh, express my, my great happiness in having another opportunity to write something for Bolt Action about the Eastern Front. Uh, I'm very, very pleased if, you, if you're feeling like it's a good book, it's a worthy book. Yes. I came out of it at the end thinking only of all the things that had, been, had to be left unsaid, basically, and all the Hungarians that had been missed out and all that sort of stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, you could always do, you know, Ost Front Part 2. Maybe. The Revenge. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> like I say, I'd rather I'd rather do you know Stalingrad Day Five and things like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's been great fun, and I'm I'm really pleased that um, it seems to be hitting the right marks for you guys. Because whenever you write a book like this, you know, you send it off into the ether, and you just hope that it it works out okay. And fortunately, I have fantastic backup from Ward Games do a lovely, lovely job of laying everything out with beautiful Osprey art and that helps things immensely as well oh, yeah. so I'm just pleased it's turned out as a good book I, I I really felt like I hadn't covered enough bases to be honest when I was writing it because there's so much to go at and it was almost more of an editing down job than a, a writing up if you see what I mean Absolutely. Well, that definitely leaves you uh, some room for some, you know, some free PDFs that Warlord could release later, or uh, you know, as I said, a sequel. So, 
There you go. Well, speaking of sequels and books, um, you, you did hint earlier, and I, I know I can hear you know some masses in the background saying, ask him about it. Um, the Pacific book, uh, Japanese book, Chinese book, I'm not sure what we should call it. You said, what is it, Empire in Flames? It's Empires in Flames is um, certainly the working title. I think that's what it's up on. Under Amazon already. Oh, fantastic! Oh, really? Okay, <laughs> I know what I'm looking at. Yeah. So, um, Empires in Flames, which basically covers, yeah, it's it's Asia Pacific. It is really was. I, I tend to refer to it as the Pacific War, but because it reaches right the way across to India, that's not really accurate. Um, oh wow! So it kicks off uh, with a big chunk on China at the start of it, because of course the whole conflict in the Asia Pacific started off. Two years before the start of the Second World War, as we know it. Um, in fact, no, that's wrong. Further still, 1931. Yeah, I was going to say, it's 31, yeah. When, uh, when Japanese aggression sort of on the Chinese mainland reached such a state that they were basically at war with each other and they continued to be at war with each other right up until, well, 1945, basically. Yeah. So that was a real education for me because I didn't know an awful lot about China myself. Uh, and it's this huge, massive conflict, every bit as big as the Eastern Front in its own way, uh, every bit as bloody as well, um, that ranged across between the, the different factions of the Chinese fighting each other and the Japanese and so on. So, huge subject all in its own right. Um, Warlord had uh, an army list already written yeah. up for the Chinese, which I took and sort of edited and wrote a bit further. Uh, which makes a big chunk of that book. And, and the, actually, the China theatre, I think, takes up anywhere up to like a quarter of the book is, is just on that, quarter to a third. Oh, wow. Of yeah, because well, that's what I would kind of start getting about. into it. Yeah. It's big. Well, uh, if you think the, about it, it's a 10-year war or 15-year war. So, yeah, it makes sense. Yes, really. Yeah, really. And a lot of that is because there's a whole army list in there as well for, for the Chinese, uh, which actually depicts... Three different sorts of Chinese armies. Oh, I'm, so, I'm now. This was actually my next question. Please go ahead. Yes. Um, well, it actually it's kind of more than that. But basically, the the list, of, as it's written, uh, covers the nationalist Chinese Kuomintang. Mm-hmm. It covers warlords. Yeah. Haha. Because it has to. Yeah. Exactly. And it also covers the communist armies oh, as fantastic. well. Fantastic. Which all use a lot of the same units, as you might imagine, but also some exclusive units to each of them. Now, does each army have its own personality or maybe its own um, national rule or has its own units that yes. give it a personality? Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a mix of things like that. I mean, like the, the communist army, for example, has a, a thing called Sparrow Tactics, which lets them redeploy at the start of a game. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, not completely, but you know, they're, they're allowed to move their units around a little bit because that's kind of what they were like to fight. They, they, they tend to be very guerrilla fighting oriented if they weren't stand-up fighters. So that, that kind of comes through in their army list, is that it's oriented towards that of lighter units, mm-hmm. a lot of infantry, guerrilla squads, infiltrators, things like that. Whereas the nationalists were the ones that got the, the majority of the, the support from the Western allies, particularly mm-hmm. once uh, war had been declared with Japan. So they tend to be more mechanized, more conventional as an army. Uh, whereas the warlords are kind of somewhere in between I, I guess is the best way to say them. but um, So they can have some tanks and armoured cars, but not many sort of thing. 
Um, so yeah, each of them's got a very distinct character, and um, in some cases, some unique arms, some unique units or officers Fantastic. to those particular strains of the Chinese army. So it, it's a really interesting list. It's a really interesting list, and, and perfectly viable, of course, because that's the glory of bolt action. Yeah, you might struggle against uh, you know JS threes a little bit, but. That's because it's an army list for the early war. But it exactly. also does cover um, the X and Y force, which fought in Burma. Oh, fantastic. Um, you know, came down from China over the Himalayas and, and fought in Burma, in northern Burma. Now, those guys uh, were armed. Equipped. Yeah, they were equipped with allied armor and weaponry, right? Yeah, they, they, they were, like, trained and equipped um, along allied lines, um, particularly latterly. And so they're, they're kind of like an American, Americanized Chinese force, right? Uh, right down to having like Stuart tanks and things like that, and roaming around with Thompson submachine guns and U.S. Yeah. issue helmets. Yeah, yeah, and they were good. They were good. You know, once they were properly fed and trained and looked after and treated as a fighting force, they they, they fought really well by all accounts. So, X and Y force. Um, there's actually um, Osprey Books makes a really good because after Warlord put out the PDF, I've been sort of snatching up Chinese things for World War II. Um, Osprey Books come, has a really good couple of books about China during World War II, about the the different army units and the forces. And yeah, guys, if you get the chance, look it up. I'll put it in the show notes for this episode. Fantastic book, um, and yeah, it'll tie directly in. So yeah. And I'm assuming that it'll have probably some of the same art with your book? I would imagine so. I've not seen a, a laid-out copy for Empires in Flames yet, but I, I would imagine so. Lots of beautiful, beautiful Osprey art. So yeah, and that's it. That's the exactly it. giant box, you expect to see some of it. Exactly. Well, okay, what else is in that book then, That, if you're allowed to say? Uh... Relying on my dodgy memory is probably as good as any limited press release. Is, uh, is that hey? Is there um, clearly the, the Japanese will be throughout? Um, will there be more with the island hopping campaign? Um, new missions or rules um, to sort of re- reflect jungle fighting or fighting in swamps? Um, anything like that? Uh, yes, I mean okay. the. Uh, all the campaign books have the scenario special rules section, which introduces appropriate scenario special rules for the theatre you're in. So in the, in the case of Empires in Flames, that includes things like amphibious landings. Clearly that's going to be important for the island hopping thing. Yeah. Uh, which is much the same as in Battleground Europe, but with some additional stuff for coral reefs and things like that. Nice. Which, you know, into the coast of Europe, but could make a big difference to you know, landing on a tiny island somewhere in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some jungle fighting rules, of course, uh, which mainly work off the limited visibility kind of approach to things. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some rules for mud. Uh, <laughs> um, you'd expect that, yeah. Um, I did a bit more with minefields by putting in things like booby traps this time around. Because, oh. again, they're, they're quite jungle fighting, Pacific War kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um the city fight rules also make a reappearance in there because, surprisingly, uh, from a, an ignorance perspective, there were some really big um, city block fights, Shanghai specifically, mm-hmm. in China for months, and was Stalingrad before Stalingrad, in effect. Exactly. Um, and then, yeah, 
each section. It's the, the sections after the Chinese section. Uh, after that comes. It, it's mainly the expansion uh, of the Japanese in that initial sort of forty-one, forty-two phase when they were just overrunning everything, overrunning yeah. Malaya uh, and down to Singapore, and then finally fighting through to Burma and New Guinea and threatening Australia. Ho ho! So there's a, there's sections on all that, like a code of trail fighting and all that sort of stuff. Oh, fantastic! And scenarios to go with that. Nice. And then it moves on to the, the island hopping campaign. It's a sort of like natural segue from that when America gets back into things and starts taking the offensive with the island hopping campaign. Mm-hmm. Right all the way up to Philippines and fighting in Manila and then Okinawa. It's, it's kind of like the full stop at the end of the book. Although we had hoped to put in some sort of what-if uh, scenarios for invading Japan, the Japanese home islands. What was that? Was that uh, the names for uh, Operation Overlord, was it? I can't think of the name of the Apple, the operation that... Because, the yeah, the U.S. and the Allies had mobilized massively for that operation. Uh, there's a great big section of it in the World War II Museum in New Orleans. Um, and for the life of me, I can't remember It's the name not it. Overlord. It's something far more... Is it downfall or something like that? Yeah. I can't remember now. I, I, I did do a bit of basic research into it. There's going to be people listening to this who are going, you're so stupid, don't you know this? Yeah, they <laughs> they yell that at us all the time, though, so that's okay. Uh, <laughs> again, so um, Andy, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Ed. Yeah. I was going to say, so Andy, you weren't able to fit in uh, when the Russians came in through Manchuria at the end of the war? There, there is a little section about that, yes. There is? Okay. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, you'd have to beat the Russians up. in again. Yeah. Uh, ironically, I kind of inherited that. Um, there was a chunk of Chinese background that had been written, and it was tack- tacked on to the end of that. Um, so I transposed it right to the end of the book. But, um, yeah, there is a bit, which was fantastically obscure stuff that even I didn't know about, so... Isn't that where the IS-3 made its first appearance, or am I making that up? No, it did. They had a regiment of them. Um, they had like a million men in Manchuria, uh, including an, an awful lot of tanks, including some IS-3s, which he managed to rush there just in time to you know, run over some poor Japanese guys with nothing more than 47mm anti-tank guns. So, exactly. yeah. ugly business. Yeah, the IS-3 was a little overkill for that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, all right. On that, um, now, I I heard a rumor that perhaps you've been working on something else. Now, it may be really far down the pipe. It may not happen. It may be something else. Um, something else having to do with World War II that you perhaps have been working on. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yes, yes. Um, a few years back now, uh, back when I was living in Seattle, actually, I was talking to a friend of mine, another designer, uh, about an idea I'd had for a, like a, a World War II fighter combat game. And he was sufficiently encouraging and saying, yeah, you should do it. Just, just write some rules for it. But I actually wrote up a game and I've been playing around with it ever since. And it's actually kind of a cool game. I, I wanted to do um, a fighter combat game that wasn't reliant on pre-planning your moves or worrying too 
too much about your exact height, attitude, airspeed, and all the rest of it. Basically, mm-hmm. I want something where you could handle a lot of planes at once. Ah, oh, right on, yeah. And, uh, and, and have a fairly sort of like active game. Because when I, I, I read reports from Aces and things like that about what air combat was like, it, it's not a cool, considered calm experience most of the time. It's, it's very frenetic and very chaotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it tends to involve a lot of aircraft at once. It's not this one-on-one sort of dogfighting that we tend to associate with the tabletop. So right. I wanted to do something that's squadron-based, uh, which works, and it's fun, and it's quite quick to play. And I have been talking to Warlord uh, Games about part, potentially producing that um, just as another World War II game to have out there, cause since they, they are kings of World War II, as far as I'm concerned at the moment, in terms of the tabletop market. Absolutely. So... Fingers crossed for that, for the future. Um, maybe a box game, maybe uh, just a set of rules, I don't know. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I want to try and shake up the, the, the aerial combat side of things a little bit for nice. World War II, because I, I feel like it's still a bit stuck in the, in the sort of like 1970s at the moment. Mm. Now, with, um, with that, are you looking at any fronts in particular, or is it sort of a generic game that works in all fronts? I guess am I asking, is it Russians? No, it isn't. (laughs) It's actually specifically not Russians. Uh, I've done stats and planes up for Northwest Europe Mm -hmm. with the classic matchups, you know, Spitfires versus Messerschmitts and things like that. And I've also done stats up for the Pacific War. Oh, nice. So you can get Zeros versus Corsairs and stuff like that. But the the, the Russian front, the the Ostfront, is a very different kind of aerial warfare went on there, and I, I kind of want I want to treat that separately, to be honest. So the the main thrust of the game covers the Western Allies fighting in the air, basically against Japan and uh, Germany, mm-hmm. and then uh, maybe one day we'll get to do the the Russian front as big because the whole way that the air war transpired there was completely different to the way that it happened in Northwest Europe. Definitely, it was all about hugging the ground and bombing guys on the ground. More than anything else. Less actual dogfighting and such. There's plenty of dogfighting. It's it's just that the dogfighting was done in a different way. It was a horde of dogfights, not just, uh, you know, one-on-one. Not the Top Gun dogfight. The, you know, the mass scrum of legions of fighters bashing into one another from a distance. Or from really close, I should say. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Oh. But yeah, lots of mass. Whereas, you know, stuff in Northwest Europe, stuff in the Pacific, it, it follows a familiar pattern, actually, on both sides, where you start off at the start of the war, everybody's on about agility and so forth. By the end of the war, they're interested in engine power and top speed more yeah. than anything else, and being higher than your opponent at the start of the fight. Um, so you, you can also see a, a sort of the changes in the stats in the planes as it were, sort of follow this curve. It's quite interesting to see. So that's just like a little secret personal passion of mine. Originally instigated, of course, by the fact that I spent a year flying with the virtual Luftwaffe in World War II online. Oh, yeah? How did that go? <laughs> there was a lot of dying and crashing to start off with until <laughs> I learned to fly. Literally learned to fly. Yeah, flight simulators, um, if they have any realism at all, usually involve me finding the nearest ditch and or uh, you know lake or river. I seem mm. to find a lot of water features to park planes in. <laughs> yeah, trees was always my favorite. Uh, yeah. But 
in, in the course of sort of doing that, I also had to learn about air combat and how it differs from you know naval combat or ground combat or anything mm-hmm. else. It, it's it's an entirely separate subject in its own right. Uh, with certain truisms about it, and I, I basically tried to write a game that reflected those I felt better than any of the tabletop games that I've I've played around with so far, in putting you sort of not so much directly in the cockpit, but more in that sort of like squadron leader position of right. do I commit my guys now? You know, we're going to get into a big chaotic fight now. Do we maneuver for position? That sort of thing. Plus, of course, I'm just having a bunch of good dice rolling as well, and being lucky counts. Exactly. Oh, that's got to be a part of any good game. That's why bolt action is so great. What's the old truism? Bolt action happened. That's right. So, uh, yeah. That, that is a philosophy that must be remembered when playing all good tabletop games. Got to roll that six. That's right. Got to roll that six. Unless you're rolling, you know, leadership or something like that, and then you want to roll low. So, yeah. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Andy, um... Our, our time is drawing to a close as much as I really hate to say that. Um, is, there, is there anything else you wanted to say with us today or, Anthony, any questions before we end? Because I'm, I'm just really stoked and you've, you've dropped so many awesome things on us. Um, is, is there anything else you wanted to, uh, I don't know, little mic drop moments before you walk out the door? <laughs> uh, no, I just once again I'd like to say thank you for, for taking the time out to talk to me. It's it's a solitary profession a lot of the time, writing books and stuff, writing games for a living. So it's always nice to get a chance to, to, to you know talk to the people who actually read those books and have thoughts about them, uh, and particularly to find out that they're enjoying them is always a real gift, a real gift. So I thank you for that. Oh, mate, it's it's great to be able to have that interaction with you. Um, I, I'm pretty sure Anthony can back this up. Back in the dark days of um, prior to the internet and podcasting and all of that, you know, we were just as fanatical about the games and had lots of opinions, but we didn't have anyone to share them with. And it's it's amazing that you actually will take the time to come out and have a conversation with the fans, um, and yeah, give us a, give us some love. So it, it's awesome, man. Thank you very much for that. My great pleasure. I say I very much feel the same way. Imagine what it's like for me to be able to actually talk to the people who are reading your stuff and hear what they have to say about it. It's a good thing. It is. It is. Uh, Anthony, any uh, final words, my friend? I just thank you for all your work in the past and in the future. That's it. Please don't stop. We're fans. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Lovely talking to you. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Here in Australia... The historical wargaming scene is supported by the amazing team at War and Peace Games. With a massive stock of miniatures from World War II all the way back to Ancients, the selection is endless. Their World War II ranges include Warlord, Artisan, Rubicon and the new Mini Irons. They also have carry cases as well as all the hobby supplies you need to get your bold action army ready for the table. Ian, John and the crew provide incredible customer support. So check them out at warandpeacegames.com.au or give them a call now. Hey gang, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Ghost Army Podcast. As always, we would love your feedback. If you heard something today you have a question about or you'd really like to talk about or you just, you know, would like to give us some feedback about something you liked or didn't like, 
Um, we are always keen for feedback. Please look up boltaction.net on Facebook um, and like us. You can send us messages or just comment directly on our page there. Um, you can see Patch, Brian, Anthony, and myself's projects uh, as they go up and uh, know exactly what we're talking about. You can also find out when the episodes drop and what articles we're putting up. Um, you can also go to boltaction.net. Uh, on that site, we do put out typically four to five articles a week about Bolt Action. And uh, there's a forum where you can comment and talk to other people in the community. So uh, if, uh, if you have anything to say, please do let us know. Until next time, this is Old Man Morin saying, may your order dice come at the right time. May your sixes come when you need them. And may you never foobar and hit yourself with your own gun. <laughs>